0: APG, it's the Airline Pilot
1: Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 364.
0: Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the Airline
2: Pilot Guy.
1: Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show. A view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jeff, proudly at the controls. episode three presumed dead after a cargo jet nosedives into trinity bay in texas a passenger flies without shoes or pants more news your feedback and in today's plane tales some more of our bombs are missing so get all settled in tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions electronic devices powered on
3: i'm radio roger and flight 354 is ready for pushback
4: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast, and we talk about aviation news and cover your feedback, as I just mentioned. Joining me today in the studio, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, a professional photographer, current captain for an international airline based in London, Don't sink. Captain Nick. Well, hi there, Jeff. Isn't it great? We've all managed to find Miami. Yes, it is great. And can't wait to get all caught up with what's happening with you, Nick. From the studio right here in Miami, he's a barbecue master, a motorcycle rider, pontoon boat skipper, Underwear photographer and captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, Captain Dana. Well, I'm
1: glad we're here in Babeland if I'm a professional underwear photographer, so yeah. looking forward
4: to Oh, it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I misread that. It's underwater ah, photographer. Yes, My I'm, bad. I sorry. am looking forward to it. And it's, it's not Babeland, by the way. It's Dadeland. But I, I think Babeland sounds sounds better. I think it sounds it's, uh, it's a beautiful day here in Miami sunny miami florida it's nice and warm and lots of babes walking around hey that's our special guest music now this person over here sitting on stage right miss liz piper um is not really a guest she is the producer production assistant extraordinaire for the airline pilot guy show liz hello welcome
5: I can't stay on camera and talk at the same time. So, hi, everybody.
4: That is her hand that's waving at all you. And thank you, Liz, for coming down from Toronto.
5: Well, it's certainly my pleasure to be here, seeing as they had about a foot of snow yesterday. So, I was quite happy to come down.
4: Ah, uh, you're missing it. I know you are. And <laughs> also, well, as I mentioned, uh, well, I didn't mention, uh, Fred was going to join us, Fred Sampson. But... Uh, he was unable to, and, uh, but we already had a microphone set up. I think that was my volume. you just turned down, um, have a microphone already set up. And so another person, our live, a member of our live audience, Chad Freeman is here. And I thought, step up and, and,
6: and get in front of this mic. There he is. Hi everybody. Hi. So I've been listening to the APG show since, uh, about t- late 2012, um, Huge fan. I've met up with Jeff and and all the well, not everybody here, but you, I've met up with you. I think of four or five times. Uh, first time was in 2013. We had dinner and just very inspiring. You just you know kept me going through my goals and you know it's like when I listen to you and I listen to Dana, um, I realized what the end goal was. You make it mm-hmm. very pleasurable to fly. You know when when you think about the process to becoming an airline pilot. You know you're the end product.
4: Well, good. Yeah.
3: And, uh, and, and we come at it. I always thought he was the rejected product.
6: Well,
4: (laughs) that could be considered an end product as well, so to speak. Um, but, uh, yeah, we all come at this from different angles, different doors, different paths, what pathways. And, uh, that's why I think it's interesting to have people from various paths be on the show or, or contribute to the show, send us feedback and all that kind of stuff, because it just goes to show that, uh, no matter who you are and and uh, you know ha- how you get here, uh, it's possible. So, we're we're doing okay over there, Liz. Okay, I just see a flurry of activity over there, and I'm thinking must must be something wrong. Okay, very good. It's talking about how inspirational you are. Oh yes, we mm. have we actually have a tear in our eye. A pers- perspirational. Yeah. Okay. So, <clears throat> with that, let's uh, let's figure out why it is that we're here in Miami. Florida at the Dadeland Mall Marriott Hotel. Captain Nick, are you responsible for this? Uh, well, possibly. I, I knew I was on a long layover here, 48
3: hours. Uh, but I think it was the lovely uh, Liz who suggested that we kind of all get together. Or perhaps it was the uh, troublesome Dana uh, who said, oh, I, I could come down and join you. Uh, and from that, uh, it blossomed. And now we're all here, cramped around a little table, sitting in my tiny hotel room. Um, trying to do a show together, but it was great yesterday, wasn't it? We had a lovely meal. Yes, yeah, we sure
1: did.
4: We went to the Captain's Tavern and uh, had yeah, a wonderful, very apt, old school <laughs> kind of uh, old Florida seafood restaurant, barnacles and all. And that, and those were the other people dining. Um, <laughs> and uh, but it made us made all of us feel really young. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> Even Nick and I felt young. Yeah. Uh, but it was really good. Good, good. I sound uh, like it. an infant. Yes. yes.
3: I, I assumed it was senior citizens' night.
4: Yeah. I think every yeah, night every, is senior night, <laughs> night. The early bird. I love it. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, we had a good time. You're right. And uh, we plan on having a great time tonight at the 94th Aerial Squadron. What is it called? Bombing Squadron? Aero Squadron. 94th Aero Squadron restaurant and bar. Um, right uh, just south of runway 927 at uh, the Miami International Airport, which is just up the road a bit. And uh, we hope that uh, we'll get a chance to see you there. Again, another reminder that you should follow us uh, at APG Crew on Facebook, Airline Pilot Guy, and on Slack. Be part of our APG team. As well as Twitter. I put it out on Twitter as That's well. what APG Crew is. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Oh. Okay, the Department of Redund- Redundancy Department. Department of Stupidness. Okay, Stupidity. there we go. Uh, let's see. Um, so, Nick, you were oh, we just talked about the fact that you were having the trip here. Liz said I'm going to come down there and get away from all this terrible snowy weather. And then Dana said, "Hey, Jeff, why don't you and I come down and join them?" So, and uh, that's what we did. And unfortunately, Steph wasn't able to join us because she is, uh, as we mentioned, in Japan running. The Or she will be running the Tokyo Marathon, which I think is on Sunday. Okay. So I can't wait to hear from her about that. All right. Um, anything else new in your life, sir?
3: Uh, absolutely nothing. No. Uh, I, I have to get a technical quiz done. Uh, Are you doing it right the now? Show, well, I, I would, but it's I need to do it my computer. It's too big. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, I can't fly home. So uh, the company just called me and said, you haven't done this quiz. And if you don't do it, you'll be grounded. And uh, you won't be able to fly home. So, oops.
4: Oops. Yeah. Oops. Well, I would never wait to the last minute to do (laughs) that kind of thing. Nope, not at all. I mean, like I wasn't at breakfast just, what, an hour and a half ago with my laptop finishing up my training that is due by midnight tonight. Uh, So I got that knocked out finally. Yeah, well done. (laughs) Yeah. While eating, multitasking, eating Sort of having a conversation, not really, listening to what they were all, all saying.
5: It was kind of rude, actually.
4: Yeah. Well, yeah I mean, me. he was just in his own world. Yeah. Non-conversationalist. Yeah. Well, I'm here now to talk. But the food was delicious. Well, tell us about that, Dana, and what you have been
1: up to. Well, you know, I just finished working 10 of 11 days in a row, so it was uh, exciting. It was, uh, well, not too exciting. So that's why we like it in the airline business, right? We don't like too many... Issues. I did have one incident we talked about last night, and uh, yeah, I'm not used to turning my head. I'm sorry. That's <laughs> okay. Now <clears throat> I, I like to look what, at you when I'm talking. So what uh,
4: incident? But just look at
1: me over there. I'm at right there. I on that know. Screen. I know. Hi. 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 So, anyways, uh, we're uh, taking off out of uh, Acme's uh, base of Atlanta, and uh, got a. Uh, it was a beautiful day, kind of like how it is today here in South Florida. Not a cloud in the sky. Uh, Fairly warm temperatures in the, uh, you know, low 50s-ish. Uh, however, there was high winds. You know, it was, it was variable a little bit. I was going between about uh, 240 degrees to 300 degrees, and it was gusting up to about 32 knots. So it really wasn't, you know, didn't exceed our limitations. However, the, uh, the landing runway, which is 2-7 left, and we're taking off on two seven right, which is actually the longest runway at the airport in Atlanta. Um we were uh, just had applied takeoff power. And we're about doing forty to fifty knots going down the runway, and I hear uh, a wind shear alert from the tower, but fortunately it was on the runway next to us at two seven left at the approach end, and we were well past that, with no indications of any type of wind shear and being affected upon our aircraft. So that was really probably my first uh, go, no-go decision real-time that I had to make. Uh, at first officer said to me, you heard that, and I said, yes, I did, and then uh, made that decision to continue with no adverse effects at all, and it wasn't, um, the, the announcement wasn't made for our runway, and I felt as though the effect was not going to be applicable to us, uh, because as soon as he made that call, he the controller made the uh A midfield wind call out and said, you know, basically what I just described. Uh, I was, you know, I think it was twenty gusts and thirty-two. I think is what it was, and it wasn't, uh, you know, it was a little, little uh, bumpy going down the runway. Once the uh, aircraft started becoming, um, you know, started to fly a little bit, and so you know, just use the control inputs to control it, and still no any indication of uh, airspeed stagnation. So we just continued uh, our normal takeoff, and once we got airborne, you know, the aircraft uh, yawed a little bit, but beyond that. Uh, perfectly normal flying. So, I think we made the right decision. I've talked to several people on that, and could have gone either way on that, but uh, I feel very comfortable. So that's that's the big thing that happened to me on this last trip. Um, and as soon as I finished up, hop on the jump seat, came down here to m- meet up with this motley crew. Well, great crew, actually. No, no, mot- motley crew. And then uh, last night we went, as we mentioned, to the captain's table, and then this morning, um, after Jeff and I. Spent a nice, pleasant evening having snoring fights. Uh, (laughs) We went to a a lovely uh, restaurant. I won, and Jeff definitely won. And I'm trying to remember the name of the restaurant right now, which I can't.
0: Roasters and
1: toasters. Roasters and toasters. It it was a uh, a a deli, a New York style deli down here. And uh, I have to admit, uh, Jeff had some, and Jeff and Nick actually. Both had uh, homemade pastrami with their eggs, and it was fantastic. Really, really good. So,
4: um, really good little place. Enjoyed it. A great little seafood place. No, that's right. Captain D's. Anyway, it was a great place. Great breakfast. Wonderful pastrami. <clears throat> so, um, and then, so, do you have anything upcoming in your life that's kind of exciting? Uh, Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh with that so, well, yeah, uh, yeah no I'm, I'm hopping on and,
1: uh I finished yesterday. I do not have to go back to work for uh, a whopping thirty days I'm, i am to have two weeks of vacation the way my schedule worked out uh at another two weeks, so I have a total of thirty days off, which is a nice thing in the airline business that you can accomplish, although I just did work uh out of uh, let's see three days there, so um really I worked. Uh, let's see, 11 days. So I worked 16 days of the last 20. So um, since the 10th of February, I've been out there working. But hey, listen, you got to pay the dues to get the free time off. I have a month off and I'm going to take my lovely bride. Uh, we've got confirmed seats, not going standby, not going to take the risk for our 20th anniversary. And we're going away to Hawaii. So looking forward to that cuz we're going to be on the uh, A330 both ways. And uh yeah, mm, and Liz over here to my left is uh, making the the hula dance and looking forward to getting laid. Mm. The proper laid by Hawaiian, you know those flowers you put around your neck. Yeah, I don't think they use the term as a verb, but we understand. So how how would they say it in Hawaii? I don't know. I've never been. Mm, no. <laughs> Yes. I, okay, so having, I, I'm looking forward to having a, a beautiful young lady greet me when I can lay on your chest <laughs> and put a lay on my chest. Wait a minute, my, no, this is shoulder, not working. i meant around my neck. Yeah. That's what I'm looking forward to. Okay. But so, yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a great time. And I'm really going to be scared because when I'm there, I'm going for two, not one, but two helicopter tours. And I'm going to do that in Maui and Kauai. So uh, I've only been in a helicopter once before in my life, and that was when I went to Mendenhall Glacier up in Alaska, and I was scared, it just scared the bejeebses out of me, let's just put it that way. It's, an, it's a family show, so I can't use the words I was going to use, but uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm kind of dreading that a little bit, but still, I can't wait
4: to see all the beauty from being in a helo Yeah, well, I can't wait to hear about it when you get back. Liz? What have you been up to?
5: Well, not much. I'm retired, Jeff, so we don't do a hell hell of a lot yeah um no, just uh trying to survive the Canadian winter, we've had a long, arduous winter this year. I'm actually not much of a a complainer about winter, usually, but it's been kind of relentless this year, so I'm really ready for spring, and it was nice to come down and have a couple of days of sun and warmth and see you guys, so thanks
4: yay, that's awesome, and uh. Chad, yes. so uh, tell us about your, let's see, when you started listening to the show, you said you had your commercial single and multi-engine ratings, but what were you doing at the time? You weren't uh, doing that for a living, were you? I
6: I had just actually started. I was going to be going to work for a certain entertainer flying her Hawker. I did the training and it's something happened with my health and I could not continue. So then I lost my medical. Then I got it back. And then I started working on my CFII, got that completed. Then I got an offer to go fly a a Jetstream 31 and 32 uh, for Department of Defense contractor, which I jumped on. It was a 135. At the time, I had like 700 hours and great opportunity was turbine time. And then I just started to build up the time. And in yesterday, I was hired by a regional airline, regional U.S. airline. Um, Yeah. Hey, oops, that's not the right one.
4: So you'd think if I hit it A, it would be applause. <laughs> but you'd be wrong. Uh, it, uh, a stands so, for... Okay, uh, now, where's, my, where's the applause?
3: A stands for another... Here call, it is. Call.
4: Yay! There's the applause. Here's <laughs> <laughs> your, your real applause. So so tell us, uh, you, you said you just got hired by a part 121 operator.
6: Uh, I did. I'm, I'm going to work for a 121 operator. Um, I should be on the line fingers crossed, everything goes well by the latest September. Um, I'll be hitting it. I'm sure there's gonna be a steep learning curve as we were talking before, but, uh, you know, this has been my life, lifelong dream. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was five years old, I knew I wanted to be a pilot, just life got in the way. There mm-hmm. were things that always would happen, but, um, thank God, luckily I'm here now. Um, but I think the training's intense. I really do. When I look at you guys and I see what you've been through, I mean, to fly an A330 and MD88's training's intense to get where you are, mm-hmm. to, to sit in the left seat. So, um, you know, it's just, I think, a case of you've just got to stick with something. If you want it badly enough, you'll find a way to do it. And I always found a way to do it. In Excellent. Whatever it took. Yeah. Perseverance all the way. Um, you just have to keep fighting for what you want. And, you know, there are going to be people who are going to tell you, don't do it. Don't listen to anybody. Just believe in yourself. Mm-hmm. That's really what I believe.
4: You uh, heard us talk about Louisiana Steve. I told him I've I've seen him now I think three times uh, since he's moved up to Indianapolis and he's part of the Republic right. uh, Lift uh, training program. Right. And I told him he's going to ha- ma- he might have to change his moniker Louisiana Steve because he's now in Indiana. Uh, Hoosier Steve. Yeah, Hoosier Steve. He could be Lafayette, Indiana Steve, but he doesn't. He's not living in Lafayette, uh, Indiana. Anyway. Uh just saw him on this uh last trip that I just finished. Uh met up for lunch at uh PF Chang, mm-hmm. PF Chang's in uh downtown Indianapolis, and he's uh doing great, uh plugging along in the training and working on his commercial. I think that evening we met for lunch and then that evening was heading out to a uh do an IFR uh night sortie. And uh when he makes it through the program, he'll be sitting in the right seat of a E R J, yeah for uh, republic airlines so yeah he's on his way yeah
6: probably 170 175 i think yeah
4: 175 yeah. i think yeah so
1: i'm looking at the uh, the chat room mm-hmm. and the chat room is lighting up with congratulations thank to you. you and uh, rebecca took the time to say way to hang on to it you're an inspiration way to go chad
6: thank you i i appreciate that um yeah i never let go um You know, it's just if you want something badly enough, if you would come to my house, you would know how badly I love how badly I wanted, how much I love aviation. I have every plane that Acme has ever flown from the DC-3 up to the new paint, new livery. I mean, I just have always wanted that. You know, at at this point, I didn't care where I ended up as long as it was some decent quality of life where I had an opportunity to build some some more turbine time and ultimately become a PIC turbine, you know, a captain. But, uh, yeah, you just can't quit. If you want something badly enough, you have to find a way because you don't want to not to become philosophical, but you want you don't want to wake up on your deathbed realizing that your life was I like, could have could have done, I should have done. Make it what you want it to be. And you
1: know? it's a it's a true, true testament because there's so many of us out here that in the community that listen to the show that have questioned whether they're going to go forward right and and pursue this career and you're a living testament as to the reason why you should never live with regrets and just go no, for it
6: no I mean but you guys are all very inspiring I mean your stories are all different, but what you've done to get to where you are it's inspiring it's like you I, you know I when I met you Captain Jeff in 2013 and you and I were talking about flying, I mean I thought that's who I want to be like I want to be like you I want to end up the, the pilot that you are and yes i've never flown with you but i'm sure you're just you're you've got to be the best of the best i mean uh, obviously yes no this, i'm just
1: kidding
6: undoubtedly the best of the best yeah,
1: Undoubtedly. You, you don't know him very well do you? <laughs> <laughs> you've never right, flown shut with up him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but hopefully someday you get to fly with him yeah I hope hope so. soon well I uh, hope you better so. hurry
6: <laughs> i mean I'm, I'm in a rush to get through the training okay get, get through the regional and and no, God willing, maybe Acme will be desperate enough to hire me. Ah, uh, come on, don't yeah. talk like that. they yeah. won't be desperate. till you know you've been um, want to hire you. Yes, you've absolutely. been through so
4: much um, hardship. Yeah, um, and uh, that just shows the the metal that you you have to just forge on and uh, and persevere. And right. it's paying off. Yeah, never give up and, and, and never quit. And and how did how who
1: made it possible for you to be able to do this?
6: Well, my wife was my wife, Jessica, was really the the driving force behind it. Um, I can go back to being five years old. My late mother was a real driving force. Um, She had a deal with me that if I did well in school, that every Saturday she would we would go to synagogue. That was the thing. Um, Every Saturday we would go to the synagogue. And then after we would drive out to the airport, I grew up in Cincinnati for the most part. And so we go to the Cincinnati airport and I got to see Acme in its infant stages there grow from at the time it was a few flights up to i think at their high point maybe what 800 a day i think they had Mm -hmm. in the cincinnati hub yeah it was a big hub yeah and i got to see that from the ground up i mean when i was when i was 14 i was 13 years old i was 14 years old i she made a deal with me if i get straight a's this one semester it was actually a quarter she would take me out the airport because acme was bringing the 767 200 in there flying it from cincinnati to los angeles and it would come in at like three o'clock in the afternoon. I think it was coming from, I think it was LaGuardia of all places into Cincinnati, then it would continue on to LAX. And so the deal was, if you get straight A's this one quarter, I will take you out there and we'll get pictures, find a way. But she got, you know, in those days, you could walk through security. You didn't have to, you know, have a ticket to go through. And she somehow found a way to talk to the captain. And before they pushed back, they had a lot of time. He gave me a tour of the plane. I, it. it Those are the things that started this. It was my mother and my wife pushed me when I was ready to give it up. She pushed on me. You know, she was always a support to this. So I'm very thankful for that. I really am. I had, you know, two great women behind me to do this. and I couldn't have done it alone. There's no way.
4: Excellent.
1: Yes. I mean. Very
6: inspirational. And, and you. you know, yeah, we may yeah. inspire you, but
4: you're inspiring us. Yeah, inspiring Thank us. You.
1: And, okay. you know, hearing it in the yeah. chat room here from other people. Thank you. And many
3: other people who yeah. are just thinking about making the change. Right. Uh, they, they know you've had to jump lots of hurdles to get where you are.
6: So, I mean, here's the thing right now, it's the best time, I think, in the history of being an airline pilot to get into it. There are people who are in their late 40s who are starting out, getting their private license and building time. The airlines, right now, as long as the economy is doing well and and people are retiring or pilots are retiring you know i think the sky's the limit you could be early 50s and still get to a regional now
1: you well and in, in, in you mentioned that you got hired at the regional yeah you just talked about how how much of a need there is for pilots out yeah. there tell everybody how in the world you're going to get completed because if you do the math yeah you have about 1300 hours they the math
6: correct 1301 as of yesterday um i was flying for a department of defense subcontractor, contractor and yesterday was the last day they lost the contract uh to a competitor and so at the time i was scrambling around when i found out five weeks ago and i thought what am i going to do i'm too. i uh, i'll end up probably with my schedule where it was about 200 hours short so this one regional airline who i will not name made me an offer we will hire you and we'll get you the 200 hours that you need. So, so the deal is they'll basically, they'll pay for you to get the final 200 hours. Um, the deal is I go up for training next month. I start one day and then they, I have to do a written exam of everything they've given me to study. Then I come home for three months and I have to build up the final 200 hours. And then I'll be in their headquarters in their training center, probably right around July 1st, ready to go.
1: So how are you going to do that? How, how are they providing that for you?
6: Uh they will I basically picked out the flight school that has the plane. They get the written estimate and then they release the funds and you and I talked about it. I'm gonna go cross country literally. I'm gonna fly from South Florida all the way out to LA, work my way up to Seattle, Seattle go as far east as Boston and go back south here. And that should do it. And I should be ready to hit the line. And basically I think what it takes to be a really great pilot it's obviously instrument skills so my whole thing is i want to get as as close to actual as i can keep my actual up because i think i only have 116 hours of actual right now and i've gotten a lot of the actual in the last year flying over the north atlantic um but the whole thing is keep your instrument skills up and that's the most important thing practice holds wherever i am i'm gonna practice holding patterns doing whatever i have to make sure my instrument skills are top-notch because i think that's the only way you get through this training
1: I can't remember the last time I held Jeff. Can you? The last time you held me?
0: No. <laughs> last, no, 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 no,
1: Last night, <laughs> right? No. No, no,
0: no.
4: no, no don't sound any rumors. No, last time you actually held in the sky. A uh, holding pattern? Holding pattern. Flew a holding pattern? Um, I did one uh, very last minute present position hold in, on the no, uh, north right downwind for runway 26 right just a few weeks ago. <laughs> it was like yeah, because the uh the ceilings were such that uh they were getting some people that were going miss and that was completely messing up the flow of traffic coming into Atlanta, and we were already coming in on the uh on that north downwind for two six right, and uh I think we're going through about seven thousand feet, and he goes, Fly heading zero three zero. We need to build up some space for some misses off the south side. And then he said, uh Okay, uh, hold present position, five mile legs, right hand turns, and wow! And the FO and I kind of looked at each other and went, "How do we do that?" <laughs> so we look in the box, and sure enough, there was a present position button. We went, hey, we'll see what happens when we hit this. <laughs> Boom! <laughs> like, and it built a nice little holding pattern for us. We went, "Yeah, we can do that. No problem." First time that either of us—I've been flying this airplane now for seventeen years, never ever done a present position hold and uh most people that i've talked to have never done it either but they know that there's something in the box that says present position and probably something we did in training i don't know i don't remember that but uh anyway yeah it doesn't happen it's very few and far between uh these days it used to be very common uh maybe before you got hired dana where they just launched the normal schedule they wouldn't do any of this flow control stuff and they'd just launch everybody regardless of what the the traffic and the weather was, and then you get to your destination and you'd be holding. Now, Nick holds a lot because I guess that's the, the way they still manage it over there going into Heathrow, right?
3: Yeah, I, I mean almost every approach into Heathrow involves at least one holding pattern. So you kind of expect it.
4: Yeah, there. And
3: we build it in, and uh, if we don't hold them, we just delete it out and go straight over the fix. But uh, uh, you have me thinking there. If someone did that to me, like present position –
4: Market and go in a hole and i'll be going nah but it was like one of those situations where you could tell that they were like like papers were flying and they didn't know what to do with all these airplanes coming in at this point uh and they and we have all these arrivals coming in and they're almost desperate like we just have to keep you right in this area so just hold there and they probably wouldn't have cared exactly what we had done as long as we didn't keep on going on the downwind or you know, being a problem for them until they were ready for us to get re-sequenced in. But but anyway, back in the old days, you know, it was not uncommon that every trip that we'd fly a holding pattern, at least one, especially going into Atlanta. And now it's very, very uncommon because now we get the flow control procedures and they give us a a set time to take off. And it really, they manage it very well. They do. They actually do. And I, I was around at uh at,
1: uh, my former carrier Link Linux. Oh, that's right. You were fine. Yeah. So yeah. that was that was Yeah,
4: we did it all the time.
1: All the time. We were always holding. Always yeah. holding. So it was it was nuts. And and quite frankly, I mean you t- you're talking about the weather. And that was the other thing that I, I failed to mention. Is the last several weeks the weather in Atlanta's been abominable. It's been mm. approaches right down the minimums and cat to two, three landings yep. on a on just Almost every time into Atlanta, so it's been nasty. That's good practice. But, uh, it is. Practice. It
4: really does keep your skills up. It sure does. It, and, and, but it makes it for it makes for a very long day, and you're very, very worn out, especially when you're working pretty much all of them straight,
1: mm-hmm. with very little break. But congratulations, thank to you. you, Chad. Thank you for joining thank us. You. Thank, and thank you for having me. It, basically, it's a it, it's an program. Realistically, yeah. is what you have right now. So yeah, exactly,
6: it's awesome. Yeah, it's it's awesome, and it's you know, it's it's my dream. Now I'm going to make it happen.
1: Let, let us know so we can put the tour on, uh, on, uh, the website and maybe you can yeah, have some meetups along the way.
6: Absolutely. I think that'd be great. And I, I will, you know, I'll bring my video camera and I'll report back. I think it'd be awesome. Very be cool. A lot of fun. Uh, somebody
4: who has listened to the show for about, I think five years, uh, I was in Atlanta going up the, I was at the top of an escalator and I was watching a, an airline pilot just about to head down an escalator. And he kind of looked at me and he had that look. I, I'm kind of used to seeing it now on occasion, but people look at me trying to decide whether or not I was that guy in the, uh, in the, uh, what do you call that avatar? You know, the airline pilot guy logo. Yeah. <laughs> so, and he's looking at me and he's thinking, I think that kind of looks like Jeff. And, and I thought, I, I know I, I turned stopped, looked at him. He's looking at me. We're coming closer together. And he said, captain Jeff. And I said, yeah. And he says, oh, nice to meet you. His name's Matt. Matt Kalin, I believe. Um, And uh, as I said, he was wearing an airline pilot uniform. He has been with the uh, regional uh, airline uh, for uh, 16 months, something like that. I believe he told me he was going to be upgrading to captain this summer. And uh, so things are going well for him. He said that he started listening to our show because uh, his father is an investor in, what is it called? I have the tag on the back of the, um, the wheel tug, I think it's called. Uh, we talked about various uh, towing devices that yeah.
3: uh, wheel will we'll driving tar- aerospace.
4: Yep. Yeah. So his dad uh, has put a lot of uh, investment money into that uh, company. And he said he started listening to our show because we were talking about it. And, and then that kind of, you know, our show also helped to inspire him to go for this career in flying right. airplanes. So obviously it, it worked for him too. So another success story out there. And, it won't be long, I'm sure, that uh, Matt will be working for the majors. So, And since you mentioned the, that, it would be really bad for me not to mention, uh,
1: I was flying the flight from Birmingham to Atlanta and got off the airplane and had a gentleman approach me and said, well, are you famous? Aren't you famous? And I said, well, maybe I'm infamous. I don't know about famous. And so it, it, local uh, chaplain Peter. Yeah. Yeah. Who you know as mm-hmm. well. Peter Bondi, Peter Bondi, we had a very nice conversation. Although I was running for the bus, I felt so bad uh, because I, you know, just finished my trip and I had to be back in in less than twenty four hours. Well, actually, only uh, sixteen hours from the time I left the airport until the time I had to come back to work. So, but we had a very nice conversation. He recognized me as I was stepping off the aircraft that I just flew. So yeah, he's a, a nice.
4: uh, he's a volunteer chaplain at the Atlanta International Airport. Uh, speaks, I think, five languages. Uh, he's from. Brazil, I believe originally he invited me to uh, be part of the homecoming um, last fall at uh, Embry-Riddle and we yeah. talked about on the show. So we have talked about on the last couple of shows, an upcoming event in February, which is now past. Uh, the hops in the hangar, um, beer, brewery, beer tasting. What would you call it, Dana? You were there.
1: Yes, I was. It was a sampling of a lot of local breweries
4: and uh, some national
1: breweries that come in and uh, serve samplings under. Uh, air, well, a lot of it's under the seven sixty-seven that's sitting there and uh, in the Delta Flight Museum. Delta Flight Museum and right next to the, to the right next to DC three, which uh, we have a photo of us together. Um, so it's it's a fantastic event, um, and a lot of aviation enthusiasts and well, actually. Quite frankly, a lot of beer enthusiasts
4: come join. Yeah, so, I think, uh, most, maybe most of the people there were there for the beer, not for the aviation stuff. Well, I was trying to put an APG spin on it. Yeah. I mean, that was worth it. But, you know, was a lot another, of us. Was
5: there another crew member there with you?
4: Yeah. There,
1: there were, uh, there's another crew member and, uh, she, who that might that be? Dr. Staff.
4: Yeah. Dr. Dr. Staff of Justice. And, Justice and, and,
1: uh, my wife, Julie came in and then we had, uh, um, who else showed up? We had, uh, oh, my God, it's a whole bunch. Uh, Tom Ivey. Dugan, uh, Dispatcher Tom was Dugan. there. Oh, Steve. Stephen Ivy. Yeah, I brought Stephen with me. We went out for a nice dinner. My buddy Dave, who uh, came to a meetup prior uh, that flies for spirit, uh, he came with his uh, lovely bride um, and then uh, saw several other friends there. So it was a great night of, uh, of liquid libations, um, tasting some different beers, even myself. Uh, who's not a huge beer fan? You know, I Jeff and I were just talking about this. So I got to be honest. I have I've really isolated down to I'm just not an IPA fan. There are a lot of beers out there that I do actually enjoy, um, but the IPA is just not down my avenue.
4: So, but uh, we, we have to understand. Time. It's like people like certain styles of scotch. Um, some enjoy the very smoky peaty kind of flavors in scotch and some don't. And same thing in, in wine and beer. You know, there are certain styles and flavors that uh, some people are, you know, happy with enjoying. And then there are also others that, uh, you know, I don't know what I'm saying here because there's so many things going on. What's going on?
5: No, um, someone in the chat room, Chad, just said, I see Chad doesn't have a computer in front of him. Someone needs to invite him after a flight to a firehouse dinner courtesy of his APG family.
6: Oh, so, that's great. This is from Justin Spark. <laughs> Thank you, Justin. Well, I, you I, know. I will take you up on He should on have it. known Thank to you. bring his own computer.
4: <laughs> I know. Actually, we probably have some kind of a device that we could set up for you to to um, follow along. I just can't think of one. Yeah. Well, he's good. So, There we go. Thank
0: you. Thank you very
4: much. All right. Uh, we turned the air conditioning back on because it was starting to get pr- quite warm in here. Um, I don't know how warm it is outside, but probably. At least 80 degrees, I would imagine. Hey, Siri.
0: <laughs> how, how warm is it outside? You are very accurate, sir. 82 degrees. Oh. And we're
1: inside in Miami. <laughs> yeah. It's about 82 degrees in here, I think. See, and, and I did suggest that we record we this out on the beach, but Jeff uh, didn't like that idea with all the electronic equipment and and that fine silica that could get involved and
4: cause all types of issues. So, yeah, uh, there are so many reasons not to record the show at the beach. That <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, um, we might be distracted.
4: No, it's nah, just not a good, down. not a good environment for electronics. That's for sure. Okay, now we've been talking about meetups, and as we've always mentioned, that uh, heading over to the airline pilot guy website, looking at our calendar, the community calendar. Is a great way to keep track of all these meetups and uh, places where Captain Nick and Captain Dana, Captain Jeff, and Dr. Steph are going to be. And uh, ways that you can contact us and set up uh, a meetup of your own. And again, that's uh, airlinepilotguy.com slash calendar. And we are also, uh, we have a meetup channel on Slack. So pay attention to Hillel at the, is Hillel still in the bathroom? Okay.
3: I was just in there and he's not there. I don't oh. know where he's gone.
4: Well you may have taken it may have gotten so hot in here he decided to go to the beach. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, I'm I'm hoping he'll be back for the end of the show and he can tell all of us how to join our Slack team. And now let's talk about a way that you can help us financially. Johnny, how much
5: more coffee?
2: No, thanks.
4: I love coffee, I love tea,
0: I love the APG
4: community, Community. coffee and tea, and the Java and me, A a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Hey, did you hear the commercials on this show? No, you didn't, because we don't have any. Because we are completely user, listener, supported, and... If you want to become part of that team, become part of the Coffee Fund cadre, please head over to airlinepilotguide.com slash coffee. And since the last episode, we've had a couple of folks give us donations via the Classic Fund method. We have Richard Adams, Sadhal Srinand, and Mazuz Karim. The other way to do it is to become part of Patreon, become a patron of our show. And since the last episode... We have three new producers. They are Lewis Levinson, Adam McNicky, and David Butler. And a new executive producer, Mateus, Mateus Alexander Ratka. How'd I do, Matt? Uh, he is from Brazil. Good-looking guy. Let's call him Captain Matt. Anyway, if you want to join this great group of folks, the Coffee Fun Cadre, or the Coffee Bar Club, or whatever you want to call him. Please head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. Trust me. Stand by for news. Three confirmed dead after a cargo jet nose dived into trinity bay on approach to houston intercontinental airport and let's see so basically we all know the story it's a twin engine boeing 767 operated by um, various pilots contracted by various pilots most of whom i think fly for um atlas uh for the uh amazon prime um operation Using the 767, this was a 767-300 that uh, was heading into George Bush Intercontinental Airport from Miami, Florida last week when it crashed. And it was in the middle of the day. Um, There was some weather reported in the area. And in fact, there is, um, I'm not going to play the uh, ATC archive, uh, but we we hear an exchange uh, between the crew of 3591. Did they call themselves Giant? What's there? Yes. Calls? OK, right. giant thirty five ninety one um, coming into Houston. And there is an exchange with air traffic control talking about some weather between their position to the southeast of the airport and the airport itself. There is uh, when if you look at the show notes, you'll see um, a, sc- a shot of the radar at the time and the track of thirty five ninety one. Um, it, it doesn't look like any kind of a very severe uh, system of weather. And, you know, but some people have said or speculated that met that may have had something to do with bringing down this airplane, but I'm, I'm thinking that this is just one of those things. that's a distraction. Yes. They were talking about people having to deviate a little bit here and there to get between there and the airport itself. But it, the kind of weather system, thunderstorm system that would take down a big airplane like that would have to be just it much much more intense than what I'm seeing on the returns here. So I don't I don't see how the weather could have directly contributed to this crash. Maybe indirectly, possibly. I don't know. We don't really know yet. They're still looking for the flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorders. Um, they have uh, uh, gotten the remains of the three pilots on board the aircraft: the captain and the co-pilot and a jump seater who, it's a very sad story, uh, had just been hired by United Airlines. And I think he was going to Houston. I don't know if he was going there for his last trip with the regional airline for which he was flying, or if he would, had completed that flying and was going to Houston to maybe start training with United. I'm not sure. Do, do you know? Do you remember
6: the detail? Uh, I think he was finishing up with, ex, with Express Jet. Mm-hmm. And I think United, I think they were Or be Mesa, maybe? It is it Mesa, yeah, Mesa, it was Mesa yeah. yes and i think he was that was his last trip and then he was going to report to denver with united i think okay that makes sense two weeks sense. for training it's it's a really that's a sad story
4: mhm and um as i said we're we're not sure yet <clears throat> what brought the airplane down um they um, i hope that they'll be able to find the quote black boxes the orange boxes as we all know soon so that they can get some data especially the cockpit voice recorder because they are there's also been some speculation that maybe this was not an accident, and uh, it could have been one of those situations where somebody purposely you know flew the airplane into the ground like this. I have not seen the video, the surveillance video, uh, but it is in the docket for the National Transportation Safety Board. They said they're going to release it at some point where it shows the last five seconds of the flight, and they say it clearly shows that this airplane, this big huge seven sixty seven is basically going nose down straight down into. Uh, where it uh, crashed into the uh, very shallow water. Uh, so um, that's that's all I know about this situation. Any Any, any more updates?
6: Yes. Uh, when I <clears throat> excuse me, when I was flying this week, um, one of the captains that that I flew with, he had this really interesting theory that he thinks, and he used to fly 767 years ago. He said it sounded like maybe the reversers deployed in flight. Hmm. Both of them. Yeah. Both at once. Wow. Now, how would that have happened? That's the question.
4: Yeah. How, how could something like that happen? Because there's so many safeguards to right. can keep the uh, thrust reversers from deploying. Now, I do believe, and I'm just, I hadn't thought about it until you just mentioned it. Right. I do believe there have been some instances in the past where a reverser has extended. And I think it was on the 767. And I do believe that it has brought down. It did and i think it was only on one of them oh, one. one engine
6: another thing i think as i recall with the 67 is aren't the fuel um, switches right behind the throttle yeah but i mean if they accidentally shut
4: down the engines that the, the thing's not going to go dropping out of the sky right. it's going to be a glider you know yeah. they're going to be trying to relight and everything else so i see what you're talking about but yeah. those are guarded switches now right um they're, early on uh, there was a an ergonomic issue with right. the fuel shutoff switches uh, on the throttle quadrant. I don't know if it applied to the 767, but for sure the 757. Right. Uh, Acme had a 757 uh, leaving uh, Los Angeles yes. years ago, and the captain accidentally <laughs> closed both engine yeah. uh, shut off switches. Um, but anyway, that was operator error. And Boeing uh, agreed that maybe they could do a better job of making those switches more protected and not right. subject to accidental activation. Uh the thing that was really amazing about that um I don't know if you all remember that uh that episode but um instead of bringing it right back to Los Angeles the captain made the decision uh in uh, talking with dispatch as well that they would continue the flight because there was nothing wrong with the airplane and uh and then he I think he came on the PA and said don't worry don't worry there's nothing wrong with the airplane i just accidentally shut the engines off. <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh, that must be one of the world's yeah. best
4: PMs. And, and apparently that didn't do it go a long way toward uh, alleviating the concern that the passengers had because by the time and this is back in the days of the uh the airphones that we had on the airplanes, uh so you know, you had to use your credit card and pay like a lot of money per minute. But apparently a lot of people thought it was important enough to contact news agencies and everything else. So by the time this airplane landed, it was already in the news cycle that uh The airplane had, the captain had to accidentally shut the engines down. So anyway, that's an aside to this situation, but that's an interesting thing. I hadn't thought about the uh, reverser, inadvertent reverser deployment. Uh, I'm thinking maybe something may have snapped that, you know, like a significant control to the the elevator or stabilizer system, but it has to be something catastrophic because the thing was at 6,300, 6,400 feet. And drop down in just a matter of seconds. I believe somebody was saying that they saw some kind of a data plot that said that their uh, rate of descent at the last couple of seconds was over 50,000 feet per minute, uh, approximately 560-something knots straight down. Uh, So, you know, something something awful uh, happened, and we're hoping to figure it out soon all right uh let's see let's move on to item b oh this is just horrible
0: (laughs) yeah
3: but the picture is
4: (laughs) air Air france passenger takes off pants shoes on 10-hour flight cabin crew allegedly unconcerned the incident allegedly occurred on a flight from paris to los angeles one passenger took the idea of making himself comfortable to new heights uh, Lizzie Thompson was flying from Paris, France to Los Angeles on Air France when she said a man boarded the flight and began to disrobe. According to Thompson, the unidentified passenger took a seat across from her into or in a row with more leg space, and took off his pants, shoes, and socks before sitting down for the ten and a half hour flight. Well, I understand you don't want to get creases in your pants. No, no, exactly right. We look smart when you get off the other end. But... Exactly. Uh, Thompson's long flight did not end there shortly after taking her seat. She said another man with a ukulele boarded. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> a ukulele? <laughs> yeah. And was ushered over by the man in boxers to make some music. All right. This story gets even better as it goes on, doesn't it? After the man stripped, Thompson claimed she alerted a flight attendant about the man's choice of travel apparel, but was shrugged off. The bizarre travel experience continued with the man stealing four mini bottles of wine from the cart two hours into the flight and then eventually getting cold enough. On the flight to put on his winter jacket though the pants seemingly remained off for the entirety of the flight um so you know this was on social media uh and people appalled by this passenger's behavior uh here's a, a picture of the gentleman in his boxer shorts now honestly <laughs> it doesn't offend me that much no to be i've honest. seen worse in costco yeah <laughs> so or the atlanta airport do you remember the story I told, and it's been a while since I've told it? I used to, <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing, really. <laughs> you used my, to walk, flying in your books? Well, shorts? so I, yeah, I used to go on, <laughs> <laughs> my wife bought these shorts for me. It was kind of a, kind of a heavier cotton flannel kind of a consistency to it. And it had a, it had a fly, um, and a, a button and, uh, and she bought these because she thought that they were like cool shorts to wear. Um, and she didn't tell me that they were boxers. And in fact, she didn't think they were boxers herself. And I went on several layovers in the nineties, um, walking around in these things, um, and not realizing that, and I, I can't remember exactly how we figured it out. We may have seen somebody else wearing them and they were, it was clear that they were, they were boxer shorts. They were like long, like right, right above the knee. It just didn't look like your, your typical boxer short. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I mean, what? must the crews have thought you know this this guy this first officer walking around on a layover and no, you know it wasn't just the boxer shorts i had underwear on underneath the boxers but i they didn't look like this guy's boxers they were they were it was very loud and flowery print it was really cool i thought they were really nice comfortable pants
1: i I really don't see an issue with it just like wearing shorts as long as the junk's not hanging out Right then, it, there's, there's really no issue. I mean, if he was wearing like a thong or something, yeah, that I mean, would be more. If he appalling. was wearing tidy whiteies, yeah, then there's an issue there. You know, it, no, I have absolutely no issue as long as it's. It, it's like if you walk. I mean, I'm wearing shorts right now, but if I'm walking around, somebody takes offense, offense to me wearing shorts. I'm offended. Yeah, but they're not shorts. So
3: are they? They're underwear, and he's taking his trousers off to sit there in his underpants. And that's not acceptable. I'm sorry. Uh, perhaps it's just because I'm British, but
4: there
0: you
4: go. Okay, I've seen a lot worse things at Walmart. Well, not that go to Walmart. So, well, I'm not saying that <laughs> that I condone this kind of behavior, but I'm thinking I'm not sure it reaches the level of of outrage, okay. and you know,
5: this is social media, Jeff. Yeah, he has to be outraged,
4: right? And I'm thinking, okay, yeah, maybe that wasn't appropriate behavior, but. We've talked about a lot of things that are really inappropriate on the show, and I don't think this <laughs> well, really meets yeah, the fresh I mean, yeah. I, I'm, <laughs> think, I'm
1: thinking about, I mean, not to be sexist or anything, but what about girls that wear really tight clothing that reveals everything?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, that's... I think, can I just say, look, we're, we're all in a very small
3: space on an aircraft, and there are dozens, if not hundreds of us, and I think it's probably appropriate to maintain a certain standard so you don't offend all the people that have to be right around you, very close to you, much closer than they would normally accept. If you see this on the street, you can turn around and walk away, but you can't do that on an airplane. True. So I think there's a certain standard
4: you have to adhere to, and it's probably slightly higher than you might get in the average um, supermarket. I think that maybe the more appalling thing about this thing is the fact that the flight attendant just basically blew her off and said, and just shrugged and like, whatever, it's your problem, not mine. If she had like gone up to the passenger and said, Look, uh, it's not appropriate for you to be on our airplane here in this business class section or wherever they were, you know, without pants on. You need to keep your pants on or do, do you have some pajama bottoms that you can put on or something that would be more appropriate attire? Yeah, uh, I think that would have been. And that would have be been the way to do it. Yeah. You know, and not just say, yeah, well, uh,
1: but I don't know where it's written anywhere in our FOM where it's actually. You know, or in the company manuals that says what people can wear and what not. I mean, I, I do know, uh, you know, offensive odors is in there, but I don't know about clothing. Yeah. I, you guys have a, a standard of dress for, say, staff travel, yeah? Uh, yeah, we do. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, actually, they, actually, and I'm disgusted by that actual change. It used to be you used to have to wear a suit and tie to get on the airplane. Yeah. Then they went to business casual, which to this day, I will not, well, all right, so someday I will be going very comfortably. Yeah. But to this day, I still wear business casual. Sure. But so you can what, wear what I'm saying is that in, the, in, there is a,
3: obviously a, a, a reasonable standard of clothing that they expect you to wear because you might be identified as an employee. And I think passengers probably don't have to adhere to that
4: standard for sure, but they have to maintain some standards. Yeah, there are some guidelines regarding like, offensive statements right. uh, offensive and, 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 writing so. yeah, sure. on on your on a shirt i mean you just can't have profanities you know wear a shirt that has is is full of profanities or whatever but uh yeah i mean you have to maintain certain basic standards although <laughs> i've seen some crazy things i think we all have um people wearing in airports and on airplanes that you just think did you actually see yourself in the mirror before you walked out of your house you know yeah.
1: Well, I mean, lady getting off the airplane the other day, remember the Super Bowl halftime show when, uh, was it, uh, well, what's the name of that entertainer? David oh, Jackson? Janet Jackson. 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 Yeah. Well, there's a girl walking off the airplane the other day and it just about plopped out. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I mean, it was, it was, it was terrible. So, I mean, people wearing almost whatever they want to wear. And, and with, as you said, not looking in the mirror before they walk out the door. So whatever. Yeah. I mean, we can beat this one to death.
4: All right. I think we did. Um, Next on the list, Salford. Is that how you pronounce that, Nick? Salford, yeah. Salford. You want to take this one? Sure. It's a a Salford crash pilot who claimed to
3: be hero is found guilty. This pilot uh, who claimed to be handling or claimed his handling of an emergency landing was so good that a film should be made about it has been convicted for breaching aviation laws. Uh, the gentleman's name is Robert Murgatroyd. Oh, it almost sounds like a made-up name, doesn't it? But it isn't. Of uh, Poulton liffide And he took off in a Piper PA-28 from City Airport in Barton on the 9th of September, two years ago. And the plane was almost 500 pounds over its weight limit. Uh, it didn't get high very high. It clipped trees near the uh, motorway, the M62, and then crashed into a field. And the 52-year-old was found guilty Of endangering his passengers and six more offences at uh, Manchester Crown Court. The Crown Prosecution Service said that (laughs) McGurta, I can't even say it's so unusual. Um, McGurta Troyd, uh, who holds a private pilot's licence and was taking passengers on a bird watching trip to the Isle of Barra, they said he charged his three passengers £500 each for the trip which is obviously illegal uh, since he only held a PPL. He's not allowed to uh, fly for hire or reward. Uh, And he filled the fuel tanks to capacity and then set off without making checks on the weight of the full plane and uh, with the wrong flight manual on board. So uh, it was well heavy. It obviously didn't fly very well and it crashed. And the pilot broke his nose in the crash one passenger suffered a cut to his hand. These people were very lucky to get away with the minor injuries that they did. And he was found guilty of recklessly endangering the safety of an aircraft or persons, recklessly endangering the safety of persons or property, conducting a public transport flight without an air operator operator certificate, acting as a pilot without holding an appropriate license, flying outside the flight manual limitations, flying without insurance, And he's due to be sentenced on the 15th of March. Uh,
4: And uh, the lovely thing is that the... Heavens to Murgatroyd. Ah, (laughs) Thank you. Remember that cartoon? Um, What was the cartoon? Um, Heavens to Murgatroyd. I think that's what the... Let's listen to it one more time. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Heavens to Murgatroyd. So when I saw that name, Murgatroyd, I went, "I've, I've heard of that before. And this is an old cartoon, and I can't remember exactly which one it was. Let's see. Um, hmm. Anyway, I'm sorry. And it's a Hanna-Barbera cartoon character, Snagglepuss, who said, Heavens to Murgatroyd. And they have whole Wikipedia articles on the phrase heavens to Murgatroyd and what it means. <laughs> anyway, so continue oh, with your uh, story about uh, Mr. Murgatroyd. Yeah. Heavens to
3: Murgatroyd. Heavens, yes. Uh, in his interview, he said uh, he described himself as a hero for the way he handled the forced landing and said there should be a Hollywood film made about him. Now, it just so happens that uh, I flew with two first officers on the way out because we had a crew of three, and both of them came from an area where this man's antics, flying wise, were renowned. And uh, they both, uh, they, they just had me spellbound uh, on the things that he was apparently getting up to. Uh, and this was the least of it. So uh, I think it's, uh, we're very glad he's been caught. We're, we're even happier that no one died as a result of his um, his appalling behavior. Um, and hopefully he'll get his comeuppance now.
4: Will he actually face jail time or is it just going to be there's some kind of chance. a fine?
3: Yes, I would say there's a good chance. but. Uh, you know, first offense, et cetera. I don't know whether yeah. he's got a history.
4: Well, and I would imagine that, you know, suspending his license is not going to have any effect at all because it, was, he even operating with one. Uh, he had a PPL, I believe. Okay. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. But not so-
5: much else. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah. No, no insurance rating, no. no commercial rating, you know.
5: So the passengers could sue him civilly, correct?
4: I would that, think so. I think it would be a very good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Wow sometimes you read things like this and think really there are people out there like that sadly
5: well the passengers probably were a bit mm, clueless too
4: yeah probably didn't way. under now they're probably
3: going what the what? guy yeah exactly right and, and we come now on to our well, one of my favorite uh, subjects and that is these uh, apps that put together people who want to go places mm. and private pilots that want to gain hours and this typifies the the wrong side of that how that system works in that people uh, without the right experience end up flying passengers and how it can uh, all come to a dreadful sticky end whereas we know that if you've got a commercial license you have hit uh, a standard of uh, aviation that makes you safe to fly with much safer to fly
4: with. yes the thing that was when I first heard the number, I guess the actual um, number was 426 pounds over the maximum takeoff weight. I'm thinking, in in our world, that's not really a lot of weight. But for this airplane, which has a maximum takeoff weight of 2,150 pounds, that's 25% over the maximum takeoff yeah, it's, weight. It's a significant yeah, it's, overweight takeoff. Wow. And, uh, yeah. Very not wise. Probably. Not wise. All right. Update. Norwegian stranded Boeing 737 finally leaves Iran. On December 14th, a brand new Norwegian Air Boeing 737 MAX made an emergency landing in Iran due to engine issues while en route from Dubai to Oslo. While the plane landed safely and passengers were able to fly out the very next day, the airline couldn't have imagined that getting the aircraft home was going to involve, or couldn't have imagined what it was going to take to get the aircraft home. Uh, Due to the recently reinstated sanctions against Iran by the U.S., which banned the sale of products that contain at least 10% U.S. content, the airline was unable to send new gear to Iran to fix the stricken plane. This caused major headaches for the airline in in obtaining the parts needed to get its newest plane airborne out of the country and back in service. Uh, The aircraft remained stranded in Iran for more than two months while the airline worked on finding a solution, all of this at a time when the airline was struggling. Uh, having a brand new plane stuck in Iran certainly didn't help its situation. Um, not sure exactly what deal was worked out here, uh, but apparently they figured out whatever part it was necessary to get this airplane flying again. They they figured out a way to get it there. and. Well, with with Boeing, it'll probably have been the
3: spring, the clockwork spring that winds on the engine up. They probably needed a new spring. <laughs> well,
1: at least the spring... Is replaceable unlike
4: the mouse that you guys have running around. To keep oh, if your you keep feeding
3: running. a
1: mouse, it'll go for
3: years. <laughs>
4: uh-huh. Hey, did you see this? An airline very similar to Acme, based in Atlanta, just as we are. Uh, Delta Airlines, they debuted the world's largest jet engine test room. Um, this is an article from CNN. Delta Airlines opened what, bi- what's billed as the largest facility of its kind Thursday, adding a key layer to safe and reliable air travel. The airline's new multi-million-dollar engine test cell building, located at its global Atlanta Global headquarters, centers around a gigantic testing room that helps technicians maintain the powerful machines that push airplanes through the air, carrying millions of passengers every year. So, if you'll look at the uh, link in the show notes, it has some nice pictures of the engine test cell, and it is indeed huge. Uh, see, doors, double set of double doors made of solid concrete that are 26 feet wide. And tower forty-eight feet above uh, the person writing this article. Uh, Each door weighs more than three hundred thousand pounds, and I believe that the uh, thing can handle the biggest of today's jet engines. And uh, there's also some margin for even larger airplane uh, engines as they are produced. Um, Let's see. In fact, the facility is designed to handle engines that are so powerful. They haven't been developed yet, up to 150,000 pounds of thrust. That's a lot of thrust.
3: Yeah, in fact, they, they say here you could call it a temple
4: of thrust. Yeah, Captain that's- Al, that's, um, that's <laughs> something entirely different than what you're thinking. <laughs> temple of thrust. We're talking about airplane engines. Just <laughs> make sure that he understood that. Sure. Okay.
1: The temple of thrust. That's okay. actually more... One hundred fifty thousand pounds of thrust. That's mm-hmm. more than one airplane weighs. Yeah. Well, the
4: eighty-eight. Well, I've heard there's a Canadian in. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs>
4: <laughs> They're coming to get. Oh, the uh, the siren in the yeah. background. Yes. Yeah, so if you can't hear that, that's what we're hearing in the background. Oh, uh, the crime rate here is just horrible in this area of uh, Miami. What a decent siren, right? Just, just kidding. <laughs> it's it's a pretty pretty high class uh, neighborhood here, isn't it? It,
6: it is now. Um... Right across the street, uh, that was the epicenter of the old cocaine cowboys movement. If you uh, ever watch that uh, documentary, Cocaine Cowboys, it's about Miami, and there was a huge shootout at the Land Mall in 1979, they, they killed like eight people in one shot. There was a liquor store literally right across the street. So it's changed. I mean, it, it's gotten much classier, much nicer here. That same week. liquor store you were hanging out at last night, Nick. Yeah, that was the place.
1: But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> trouble was, they only sold liquor. And since we're talking <laughs> about the area, have you ever had the barbecue over here at Smokey's?
6: Uh years, ago, so yes. Yeah. Yes. Jordan, they Shorty. say Smokey's. Shorty. Yeah. 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 But there is nice. a Smokies too here, by the way. That's pretty good barbecue. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. I recommend if you ever get up to Palm Beach, you want good barbecue, go to PA, PA Barbecue. Great.
4: Pennsylvania Barbecue.
6: Yeah. Pennsylvania Barbecue, they call it. Yep. PA Barbecue. All right.
4: What is does a PA really stands
6: for, it stands Pennsylvania? for Park Avenue? Actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. It's really good. But PA, if it, you know, it, it yeah. it's association. Yeah, for sure.
4: Uh, you know, in the last show, Dana, you were talking about, uh, coming in for landing in some unstable weather conditions. And your flight attendant asked a question, a strange question about lightning hitting airplanes. And yes. we had a little discussion about lightning hitting airplanes. And then it was actually, I believe that day or the next that, uh, uh, it was Delta, huh? It was that that day, yeah. Yep. Uh, I thought it was kind of coincidental. Um, this, however, wasn't one that your flight attendant saw on final in Atlanta. This was one that was en route north of Atlanta. It was operating a flight from Milwaukee to Atlanta. It was an MD90 with 164 people on board. They were at 25,000 feet, about 25 nautical miles west northwest of Chattanooga, Tennessee. And when they um, were flying through a frontal weather system and received a lightning strike, the left hand engine, which is a V2525, actually, it's a 2528, uh, began to vibrate, prompting the crew to reduce the engine to idle and to divert to Chattanooga for a safe landing on runway two about 25 minutes later. And, uh, you know, sadly, I heard this on the local radio station and they had audio from Live ATC net the place that we like to get our audio from and I went I'm thinking this is going to be perfect i'm going to play it on the show and I could not find it I went I scoured live to find this audio because you could clearly hear the pilots voices talking with the Atlanta Center about the fact that they had hit been been hit by lightning and that one of their engines I believe the left was vibrating and it was acting acting up a bit and they I believe they reduced the I think the news report said that they shut down the engine, but I believe they just reduced the uh, uh, power to idle on it, continued to operate the engine, but landed short of the destination Atlanta. Um, But uh, yeah, it's the weirdest thing. If you're listening to the show, I mean, you can find that audio. Please let me know because I, I was just working hours trying to find it. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm wondering if the airline squelched this, um, recording or something i don't know i don't know why they would because i thought they they sounded like they handled it very well so anyway just thought i'd throw that in there because it was just kind of a coincidence that the day that we were talking about lightning strikes on the show we actually had one in an airplane that dana and i are very familiar with remotely remotely yeah well we should be familiar with we're not really um that's a joke two General aviation instruction crashes last Saturday. One um a student and instructor killed after a plane crashes in a at a Massachusetts airport. And another uh flight instructor dies, girl injured after plane crashes into a Winter Haven home down here in South Florida. that's near uh Orlando area, isn't it? Winter Haven West. Okay. Um yeah. Uh, Liz, um tell us um any common thread in these accidents
5: i i don't think so i just i did notice and and i believe me i'm not trying to be ageist here or anything the instructors were quite a bit older i'm just wondering if that might have been a factor in in either one but um i just found it quite sad that um you know they were obviously out instructing some young pilots and and on the same day there there were these two accidents so um You know, I don't really think there was much commonality to them, but um, it was just kind of sad.
4: Yeah. And again, sort of coincidental that both these involved instructors, older instructors with younger students. Right. Hmm. Very sad. And uh, uh, here's another item here. Uh, Sheffield bomber crash fly past on the 75th anniversary. Uh, thousands of people cheered a fly past honoring 10 airmen who died when their plane crashed in a park 75 years ago. The U.S. bomber came down in Encliffe Park, Sheffield, on 22 February 1944, killing everybody on board. A campaign for the fly past started after a chance meeting between BBC breakfast presenter Dan Walker and Tony Foulds, who tends a park memorial. Uh, anyway, so... Uh, uh, the thing
5: that was Sorry, Nick, go ahead, please.
3: This is a big thing in the UK, uh, Jeff, because, uh, uh, you know, this gentleman has uh, almost ever since uh, that memorial was put up has uh, tended it almost every day of his life, keeping uh, the flowers looking pretty, keeping the place clean and uh, in honor of it, because he as a very young kid was playing in that park. And he was um, he was so close to the bomber as it crashed overhead on only one engine. uh, It's all it had left. Uh, And he could see the pilot uh, waving at them, desperately trying to get them to move out of the path of his crash landing. And he believes that they tried to hold the bomber up uh, as long as they could to miss the kids. And as a result, they hit the trees at the end and it cost them their lives. And so he felt morally committed to uh, look after the memorial to these guys. And he, for years, has been trying to get uh, a little more recognition and he was just so pleased when the United States Air Force and uh, a few Royal Air Force aircraft were able to make this flypast. And the crowd that turned out to see it all happen was really quite amazing. It was uh, quite a tearjerker, and it was all over the news.
5: And I think some of the um, descendants of the um, dead airmen were able to come to the flypast, and that was quite emotional, I think, for him too.
3: Yeah, yeah, they all made a, a great connection, I think. And then the F-15 uh, strike eagles uh, from our local uh, USAF base came across and did that fantastic missing man formation where they come across in finger four. Uh, you know, if you hold your hand up, you can see the shape of your fingers represents the formation they came across in. And um, the, uh, what, what the, as they came overhead, uh, one of the eagles uh, pulls up and uh, climbs out of the formation uh, representing the, uh, the
4: deceased uh, pilot. And the airplane was a B-17 Flying Fortress that crashed. I don't believe I mentioned that at the beginning. Yes. All right. And then finally, last thing in our news folder, uh, and I I suppose I haven't really been keeping up with it the last day or so, uh, but it was just, what, two days ago that this uh, happened a passenger suspected of attempting to hijack a flight from Bangladesh to Dubai has been shot dead by Bangladeshi special forces the suspect who reportedly warned he had a pistol was killed when security forces stormed the plane after it made an emergency landing in Chittagong yeah that's right all right um so uh, an attempted hijacking was thwarted and you know what actually i have to be honest here when i saw this and started reading it and when i was doing the setup i was thinking about the fact that there has been uh, some, some skirmishes involving uh, India mm-hmm. and Pakistan. Uh, and that's where my head was when I was talking about this is something that just happened recently and I haven't been keeping up with it. Uh, has that um, settled down at all? I know they uh, closed the entire Pakistani uh, airspace, which has been really severely affecting a lot of, uh, a lot of flights in Europe, especially long- long-haul flights
3: yeah well the the last I heard and I haven't kept up with it um has was that two Indian fighters were shot down um and at least one of the pilots escaped and there were pictures of him uh, and the Indians were complaining that uh, he'd been abused because he looked like he'd been quite badly injured on one side of his face but whether that was a result of uh, uh, the, his ejection or not I don't know but uh yeah quite rightly uh, and I think the authorities are much more sensitive to it since the Malaysian airlines Aircraft was shot down um, in over the Caspian Sea or near the Caspian Sea during the uh, the Russian conflict there when they uh, invaded the Crimea. Um, th- uh, they, they've been a lot more sensitive, and when you get these co- conflicts uh, sprouting, uh, I think they're asking uh, civil airliners to give them a wide berth. Uh, so, yeah, that'll be the reason.
5: Um, I was thinking of mentioning to Jeff that the Air Canada flight from Toronto to Delhi had already launched when this started, and they flew for seven hours and turned around and came back to Toronto. So they had a 14-hour flight where they didn't go anywhere.
3: Oh, interesting. I I must admit I'd have been tempted just to give it a wide circuit. And if I ran short of gas, I'd pop in somewhere a bit closer and continue the flight. But uh, I guess uh, they perhaps didn't have enough information on what was going on to uh, make a, a, a good judgment.
4: Wow, can you imagine being on an airplane oh, for 14 no. hours and going, no, I'm, I'm wait right. a minute, <laughs> this, this looks exactly like it. the place I left. I didn't think yeah.
5: that's snowed like this in Delhi. <laughs> yeah, no
3: i yeah. What? And of course, Bangladesh is the other side of India than the Pakistan, one uh, of which is happening over the Kashmir.
4: Yeah, so there's a lot of unrest, uh, apparently, in that area of the world. And I'm hoping that everything settles down because, uh, you know, both Pakistan and India Uh, are nuclear-capable, nuclear-powered, whatever. They they have nuclear power, which is scary. All right. That is it, ladies and gentlemen. That's our news for this episode. And now it's time for your feedback.
5: Captain, incoming message.
4: The first item in our feedback is from Texas Charlie. I think his name, Charlie, and I think he lives in... Texas. Texas, yes. Uh, oh, and thank you, Texas Charlie. just want to convey that, that nice little care package that you sent uh, with the uh, individual gifts for the APG crew have now been completely distributed and they are all thankful for all of your kind gifts.
3: I'm going to take those BMX to Australia and Give them to my father, who, of oh. course, used to
4: fly for British Caledonian. So, thank you. Very good. And and Liz is going to enjoy a nice cup of coffee from her producer mug. <laughs> okay. Um By the way, I used that. I had some plumbing issues at uh, the house, and I used that to um, drain some of the pipes. So... Make sure you clean it really well. Uh. <laughs> Just kidding. I did not do that. No, no. He got caught short and peed in it. <laughs> wow. Told you not to share that story. Oh, sorry. <laughs> okay. Wow. Anyway, um, Texas Charlie, he knows who the boss is at this show. He uh, sent this to Liz. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Thought this might be interesting. Turboprops might be making a comeback. And then he gives us a link to an Apple News article. And uh, it starts off with the headline I'm flying in that. Unloved turboprop gets second look. The privately held airline expects delivery of twenty new turboprops by the middle of next year. Which one is that? Silver. Um,
6: silver Airways. Oh silver. silver. Okay. Yeah.
4: Um yeah, they I I see them all over the place. Uh, I know they fly a lot of uh three forties. Yeah. Yes. And uh what exactly are there are they gonna get um now? The ATR?
6: Yeah. The ATR, uh, 42, 600, I think. Oh, nice. Yeah. They're parked at Fort Lauderdale. I think they have four of them so far, but they're not using them. They can't get them on a certificate. There's some issue oh. right now. So okay. they're just parked.
4: Interesting. Interesting. Well, you know, you know, back in the day when, um, Bombardier came up with these, uh, regional jets, um, the airlines just, you know, went gaga over them thinking that, Uh, The passengers would prefer flying or at least perceive that flying in a jet was safer uh, and more modern than flying in these old turboprops. Uh, But uh, they are just for a lot of these segments are not as fuel efficient as the turboprops are. And I think now that they're kind of they're kind of looking backward, not in a bad way, but in a in a good way, fuel efficient way at these. Uh, very capable airplanes and uh, you know the the effect that they're going to have on the bottom line of uh, their operation so um and as many people know uh, I've never flown a turboprop I've, I've flown as a passenger but I've never actually piloted a turboprop aircraft but we do uh, you um have just recently yep. flown the Jetstream 31 yeah. 32
6: and yeah it's you know I enjoyed it actually I have to say the plane I flew um you know it's it's a great plane for a, a about a 45 minute to 60 minute mission or sortie mm-hmm. um it's a great plane i think economically i mean we were burning about 600 pounds of fuel an hour basically give or take between depending on winds and conditions 600 to 650 pound total hour, total that's wow. it for an hour so um it's very economical mm-hmm. i mean and i, I Yeah, it was a great plane to fly. You know,
4: Chad, we should have contacted you. We had some feedback. Um, I don't know if you remember listening to the show. Uh, Somebody had sent us feedback. I think it was uh, aimed at um, Captain Nick because uh, Jetstream was uh, manufactured in the UK. Right. They thought, this person thought that Nick might have had some experience flying the Jetstream. And uh, he had not. And he did. (laughs) He's doing all kinds of uh, (laughs) nonverbal communication here. And I'm not sure what to take from it. but. Um, he you found a friend of yours who did fly it and and there was some kind of comment made about how it's not the easiest airplane to fly
6: no it's not easy at all there's no no autopilot it's it's ifr hand flying in the clouds but Uh, is there
4: but the character the flying characteristics uh, itself uh, other than very
6: hard is it why it doesn't want to hold it's just it depends on where the cg is especially this thing's really hard to fly um i'll tell you the one thing about about the jet stream is, is it's constant, you know, trim, trim, trim. You've got to keep retrimming and it's heading altitude, trim, trim, trim. That's all you do. And in fact, the thing that really screwed me up when I learned to fly the thing was the, the attitude indicator is so different from what I was used to because I was coming from general aviation. So when you make a left turn with this thing, and I don't know if that's a British thing, it turns. It shows a turn to the right. The arrow points to. Well, they
4: drive on the wrong side of the road, yes. so obviously it's going talking yeah, about the bad. artificial right. Yeah, artificial right. Yes,
6: the bank indicator. Yeah.
3: Well, well, yes. we, you can have it at the top or the bottom. It depends. Uh The British ones tend to be at the top.
6: Top. Yeah, yeah. they're at the top, and when let's so let's say. You know, like when I, when I took off yesterday, I'm making a, a left bank turn from uh, the runways 9 and 27 out of Fresh Creek where I was flying. You make the turn to 330 because you're going to Isaac Island. That was one of the, the spots where that's our first, first spot on our route. Oh, my God. It, you're turning to the left. It's telling you you're turning to the right. And that thing screwed me up completely. It's just the yeah, British tr- thing. The trick is not
3: to look at it until put right. the bank right. on and then just adjust. But uh, I had the same problem when I moved to the Phantom. Because, of course, that had American instrumentation. Right. And uh, I was used to the bank angle indicator being at the top, and now I had to look at the bottom for it. And I, yeah, went through the same sort of mental readjustment. Right. Once you got the hang of it, though.
6: Yeah, I did. Absolutely. I mean, 500 hours into it. But, yeah, turboprops are great. I mean, economically, you know, if I were to start an airline, a regional airline, I wouldn't go with a regional jet. I would go with a turboprop, a good Mm -hmm. turboprop, something that would burn 600 to 700 pounds an hour.
4: Right. Um. I was just thinking that the experience that you have with the stream is just like gold. I mean, it's, it was painful doing it probably. It was. Now, when you look back and as your career moves on, yes. you're going you're gonna to be thankful that you got a chance to fly an airplane oh, yeah. like that. Because absolutely. it's really building
6: your skills. It, it, it absolutely built my skills. I mean, I can hand fly now better than I ever could. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't even know how to use an autopilot anymore. I've forgotten from when I flew a Cirrus. <laughs> You know, it was easy to just hit the button and that was it. But mm-hmm. now with the, with the jet stream, it was all hand flying. It was great. You'll get great used experience. to it. Yeah, quickly. absolutely. <laughs>
1: you'll, 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 you'll lose that uh, a little bit. Yeah, sure. Going forward.
4: Yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you, Texas Charlie, for that. We'll put that uh, link in the show notes. Uh, here's an interesting one from Simon Vett. Hey, Captain Jeff and crew. My name is Simon Vett. I'm from Melbourne, Melbourne, Australia. Did I say that right? Melbourne. Melbourne. I heard, oh, somebody, oh, like somebody said like you know it's like melbourne or something i don't know. melbourne uh i've been listening melbourne. to your show for about a year now and can't stand it i work on no he didn't say that i did um i work on a tidal canal piloting i work on a tidal canal piloting a boat and barge while we were working my deckhand and i listened to your show and we started talking the other day about ils landings and hand-flown landings we were wondering if it's not a If it's not a Cat 3, can you still do an ILS land, and do you have to hand-fly the approach, or is it up to the captain? I think what he means is, if you're not flying a Cat 3, can you do an ILS auto land? I think that's what he means. Um, And anyway, I hope to hear your feedback. I have a six-pack of beer riding on your answers. Oh, wow. Well, Simon, you should have put a PS here and tell us which. Which (laughs) one. So we don't know
5: they can be bribed
4: yeah we can easily as long as we get beer yeah more beer 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 um so i looked through and our um our documents at uh, acme um talking about um autoland approaches and i'll just read a couple little excerpts here for at least acme's operation um when performing an autoland, the pilot should monitor the quality of the approach, flare, and landing, including speed brake deployment and auto brake application. Um, well, you know, I should not. Maybe I don't really need to read this. Basically, yes, it is something that we can, we're allowed to do. In fact, uh, it can be uh, actually performed by the first officer at ACME, um, an autoland, uh, as long as it's briefed properly and as long as it's not. Um, anything more low visibility than a category one approach. And, um, and I think I've only had, I've only sat through an auto land approach once. Um, when a first officer was actually performing the auto land, just a little weird. We're just not used to, um, doing that, but it is possible. And yes, we can perform auto lands, um, Using a regular Cat One ILS approach, except that you have to be sure that um, you are aware that the critical areas may not be. And I think we talked about this on the, either in the last episode or the or a couple of episodes ago about when, at least here in the U.S., when an ILS critical area because an ILS uses radio beams, uh, one for the uh, the ground track, the localizer, and the other for the glide path. Uh, the the vertical path to the runway. And if you have airplanes or vehicles that are near these antennas, they can actually bend the signal. And we see this all the time in Atlanta, Dana and I do, uh, where there are at least two, sometimes three airplanes ahead of us using that same signal. And then there are airplanes crossing the runway, sometimes two or three at the same time. And every time one of those things cross the runway, it forces the, or makes the The uh, signal kind of bend or move around, and depending on your airplane, our airplane's not very smart. It just like a little dog trying to like follow this little uh, expanded thing, and sometimes your airplane feels like you're uh, you're on the seas, you know, with huge waves, and it's like just kind of search, you know, trying to keep that thing centered. And so it's not desensitized enough, in my opinion, uh, when you're a certain distance away. But anyway. Um, so you have to especially be sure that, or at least aware that something could bend that signal as you get much, much closer to the runway and you may have to take over manual control of the, of the airplane to keep something bad from happening. So, um, yeah, that's, that's all I have to say about that.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the thing is we do do the practice auto lands and, uh, you know, a clear day like it is outside today, we're, you know, clearing a million, you can see halfway across the state of Florida right now with the height that we're in this building. You know, that can be, that if if it's a requirement for us to do an auto land for aircraft certification, it can be easily forgotten that you need to make sure you let the tower controller know that you are doing a certification landing on, you know, on the airplane. So to make sure that the, the area stays clear. Mm-hmm. So... That's another area that uh, is actually a threat that would be briefed um, in in my in, you know in my um, briefing. Well, yeah, my briefing, but in Your brief briefing, in, in my in my opinion. I mean, that's what I was going to say. So, anyways, yeah. So that's all I have to say on that. Yeah, we can auto land the airplane
4: just about any time we want to. But it's not not very common, I would say. Most of the time, if we're flying a visual approach or an ILS approach to Category One minimums. Uh, we disconnect, uncouple the autoflight system, and manually fly it from the decision height down to the runway. That's the most common way that things are done, at least at Acme Airlines. Well, and in, in not too long
1: before I upgraded to the left seat, uh, we were doing one of those uh, certification autoland uh, on an airplane. Um, and the next thing you know... <laughs> You know, the older technology is not as good, good as the new technology. In a lot of cases, they will get you down, but the air, aircraft side got into the flare, got to 20 feet. Next thing you know, it's pitching up and climbing away from the runway while the power is at idle. So the captain, of course, clicked everything off immediately and took control of the aircraft. But imagine if you're in a, you know, real, no kidding, uh, you know, very low, right to minimums landing, that would not be a good situation. So that's actually why we do certify Uh, And make sure the airplane is 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 operating as as advertised, and yeah, I'm with you, Jeff. I mean, it's you know from my experience, uh, very few of the auto lands I've ever experienced are actually pretty smooth. They're all pretty rough. So uh, even this last couple weeks, when with the weather being right to minimums, Cat One minimums, I chose to use the. use the cat one minimums and click the airplane off right at minimums and fly the airplane to the ground instead of doing an auto land.
4: I guess I've been lucky. Mo- I'd, I'd say a majority of the auto lands that I've had to perform in the last couple of years, uh, more than half of them, are actually pretty decent landings. The kind of landing that you would not be um, you know, hesitant to stand at the door and say goodbye to the passengers. Well, I mean, it's because you're because I'm used to my standards, my ah, okay. floor. Yes, we know that. That's, so. okay. But <laughs> that could be. Maybe I'm getting so old now that I have no feeling in my bum. Yeah, uh, it, it, could it, be it. It, it could be the pot. It could certainly be that.
3: But, <laughs> uh, be the <laughs> um, I'm just going to make the differentiation between an ILS that is certified for a Cat 3 landing one that you're only allowed to go down to Cat 1 minima on. So, uh, not every ILS you can perform an older land off. Um, so, if it is on a Cat 3 ILS, and those have to be particularly set up and certified and regularly checked. Uh, But the great majority of ILSs are only cleared for Cat 1, so you are not allowed to follow the ILS all the way down to landing. You can follow it a little below below minima, but uh, at some point you're going to have to disconnect and do uh, manual landing if it's only Cat 1 approved, Uh, certainly in my country and according to our airline's uh, regulations. So that one, you would always be obliged to eventually take the autopilot out and do it manually. But if you've got a Cat 3 ILS and it's good weather, there's absolutely nothing to stop you doing a a practice auto land. And Dana's quite right. You let air traffic know. So they keep the critical areas around the ILS aerials free. Or if they can't, they give you a warning that it's not protected so that you have to be extra aware of the fact that the aircraft might deviate. Um, Just a question. I, I
5: watch and listen to a lot of the um arrivals at, and departures at Toronto and there's a Nav Canada plane that comes in i would say once a month and and does approaches and stuff is that the kind of thing that they're doing is recertifying the ILS like they'll talk to air traffic control and say we need to do approaches on certain runways stuff
3: almost certainly because okay. uh, all the all the uh, instrument uh, beacons and landing systems everything has to be regularly certified by uh, your uh, administrative authority and they will have a test aircraft that will go and do that. Uh,
5: you.
4: Yeah. yeah, so just as the airplanes are required to uh, every cert- certain amount of time, you know, cl- certify that they can actually do these kind of approaches, you still have to have the navigational the other side of, it. The, other side of the thing has to be yeah. checked as well. Yeah. So <laughs> did we Yeah. How do we do? Did, did, uh, did you win the six-pack, or did you lose it?
3: I suspect there's still a fair amount of argument going to be on on the dredging vessel.
4: I think m- maybe so. Simon, let us know. All right. Uh, item three, we, we got um, feedback from both Steve Hurst and Steve Horn. Um, he says, I know you will have already seen this video all over Twitter, but I, I'll formally put in my question anyway. And I'm trying to... Rem- which, which... Uh- this is Steve Hurst. Steve Hurst? Yeah. Okay.
5: Steve Horn just really just sent the video in.
4: Okay. So, but they just... Thank you. Okay. Uh, so the video here, I'm going to play... What is... I'm trying to remind myself.
6: I might be completely wrong. And uh, if I am, then uh, Frankie, you got it.
4: Okay. It's a... Uh, British Airways. Is this is a Dreamliner? Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay, we've been. That's
3: a normal landing for a (laughs) Boeing, isn't it?
4: (laughs) Well, a Boeing spelled your way, boing (laughs) boing. But uh, yeah, so didn't we already talk about this on a previous show?
5: Uh, It may have been mentioned, but we We haven't had this. Oh,
4: okay. It just seems like it's like deja vu. I thought we talked about this. Well, it uh, seems like they tend to do that on a regular basis. Yeah. Well. The conditions that awfully windy conditions that was during storm Eric, uh, at Heathrow, uh, when the, when the airplane came in and I do remember seeing, and I just, I tried to find it and I couldn't, um, a video from inside the cabin, uh, and what they experienced when the thing was coming in on very short final above the runway and when at the point at which you see in the external video where the nose of the aircraft, uh, goes down suddenly. And then at that point. Obviously, the pilots initiate their go-around procedure and exactly what they're trained to do, what we were trained to do when we're in a situation like that. And, uh, and you could hear everybody in the cabin probably at the point where it goes negative G when the nose goes down and they kind of go – and then when the main gear hits down – you can kind of hear some people screaming <laughs> and then the thing just ro- the engine's roaring in and the thing you know leaping back up into the air.
3: That, that did not look like pilot input when the aircraft nosed over Mm-mm. almost certainly a, a, a nasty gust.
4: Yeah. And the only thing you can do is, as they did, and as we talk about all the time on our show Going We're green. Going green that's not the one that i wanted to play
5: some of the passengers went green
4: there we go yeah <laughs> some of the passengers did go green <laughs> at the same time they were going round
0: don't wait until your socks flying all
4: always go round all right um, haven't played that in a while so thank you steves for the question feedback and the video link. All right, Uh, oh wait, I think there's a question actually here. Uh, Putting aside all the media hype, my sense from the responses on social media from professional pilots is that this is a well-executed maneuver and actually not that much of a big deal. What do you guys think? Yeah, we agree. Would really be interested to hear, I mean, it could be a big deal if uh, that guest had had come at maybe uh, a, a later stage in that landing sequence and, you know, pranging the, uh, the nose wheel down first, that would have been a big deal.
3: Yeah, if the pilot hadn't been quick enough to try and cushion that impact because it was right. coming down pretty damn fast in the last uh, 20 feet or so.
4: Yes. Um, he continues, would be really interested. No, we just talked about that. Oh, no. Would really be interested to hear your views on the maneuver and perhaps you can talk us through step by step the procedure itself. And what would be going through your mind in the final stages of the approach, knowing the weather conditions you're facing? What are some of the dangers or traps that uh, we're facing at the point they effectively landed, then decided to go around? And he said, by the way, I think, isn't this what we would call a balked landing rather than a go around? I mean, you could call it a balked landing or a go around. I think either one would be appropriate. What, what would you say?
3: I would have said you really do have to have your wheels on the ground to be a balked landing. Uh, for me, this would be a go-around. You can do a go-around. In a big airplane, uh, you do a go-around for 50 feet. Uh, it's quite likely that your gear will touch the runway because uh, that's about how much height you lose in a go-around uh, before the engines bite and your your pitch, uh, your know, change in attitude uh, has a real effect, just the inertia. Um, so, uh, yeah, but when you're settled on the ground, uh, that's a bulk landing for me, and if you put
4: power on at that point, then... Uh, uh, you're going around on a boat landing, yeah. And what's going through your mind in the final stages of the approach, knowing the weather conditions that you might be facing, Dana, when you're getting winds called out? And you and I have flown uh, in the recent days, weeks, uh, with very, very high gusty wind conditions.
1: Yeah, well, actually, uh, going into Madison, uh, Wisconsin, had that exact uh, scenario coming about where the it's a north-south runway, and the winds were pretty much out of the due uh, west. So before left even left Atlanta uh are we already thinking about uh and, and, you know the exceedance of the crosswind limitation of the aircraft uh, that we that we yeah, acme follow uh, which is thirty knots so it was an exceedance it was guessing to thirty four knots out of the due west you know two, two, seven, zero, two, eight, zero. so clearly not able to um make <clears throat> make a, a landing in those conditions and the other runways were were not really optimal or usable for you know one other Runway we could possibly use not optimal, and the other one's not usable at all. And that was the runway they were using uh, was runway three two, and it, the you know runways too short. So there are a lot of things that you you know you're looking at and considering when when you're you're uh, uh, going to land in that much of a crosswind. Of course, making sure we're within limitations and how the aircraft will perform. Uh, you know I don't know about you Jeff, but flaps twenty eight is what we'll use uh, use in, in crosswind conditions. Because the aircraft just performs better; it's it's less of a uh, a wind catcher with the flaps forty. Um, just my personal uh, no,
4: that's that's actually recommended by, by my, my company. Company, yeah. But I normally use forty, yeah, because I like the the roll uh, rate capability that I added roll rate capability with flaps forty. But I do understand; I can see both perspectives. I can right. see the reasoning for going with a lower flap setting and having less. Uh, surface out there to catch the wind, but on the other hand, I'd rather have the increased roll rate um, capability. So,
1: so um, it, you know, so you know, those are some th- some of the things uh, I- I'm considering. Uh, a lot of times when you get the uh, wind from the ATIS, uh, a lot of times that's a, a current reading at that exact time. It's not the current reading that it is when you're approaching the airport, and a lot of times. The wind that the tower reads out to you is, is a lot different um, than what you're expecting. So you always have to keep an open mind. You have a you know have a plan in place as to what you know what wind type of additive we're going to add, and uh, we always assume a five knot additive uh, to the uh, speed card. But in a lot of cases, we can add up two to twenty knots for a uh, uh, you know a headwind <laughs> or headwind component. Um, and we always add half of the steady state and all of the gust uh, on the component. So those are things that we we do to mitigate the threat and uh, have uh, have a plan in process. Uh, every time you uh, go to land and use proper technique in, in crosswind landing in a turbojet aircraft, um, you know there are two different methods. Of course, crab and uh, wing low method, and I I prefer to use the crab method myself. I'll crab it all the way down. I'll kick it. And line, line the, the jet up with, with the uh, center line and, and, and put the proper wheel down. So that's, that's how I handle my crosswinds.
4: You're going to be a great Airbus pilot. Because that's kind of the way you do it, right? You well, kind of yeah, leave it in the crab you, and then you.
3: If you use a wing down uh, method when you've got potted engines, uh, you're very likely to bang an engine in when you didn't really want to. Uh, what, what
4: I do is I use the, the wing low method and then right before touchdown, level it out so that you're you're touching down wings level. Sure. But that's kind of a combination of the two. It right? takes great skill. Yes. I understand what you're saying. Yeah, yeah exactly. Only a man of your caliber
3: <laughs> would be able to do that. And you're exactly. Real, you're a real point two
4: two man. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> 0.22. 0.22 caliber. It's very small. Oh, right. oh, that's very clever. Where are we uh, in the uh, show? <laughs> I, 10 I, minutes from 2? I okay. was
3: going to just add a little bit, because uh, we're talking about go-rounds. and uh, the, the Yeah, everyone... but we're looking
4: for people that really have something <laughs> important to say about it. And Okay, go ahead.
3: But everyone was at Plains to say how they were a very common and um, well-practiced maneuvers, and they are. But it's amazing when you look at the statistics, which are often kept. The what? Uh, statistics. <laughs> statistics. Statistics? That's the one. <laughs> That's it, that kept by airlines, uh, how often they are not flown uh, appropriately. Uh, just minor mistakes often, but uh, because we don't practice them every day, and uh, they're only done in the sim, and there are several different rate flight regimes when the go-around has to be flown in a completely different way. And we've just talked about one, a bulk landing, go-around from a bulk landing is completely different from one that when you're airborne. And there's also, uh, certainly in our aircraft, a different technique from when you are below the acceleration altitude to when you're above the acceleration altitude. And each require uh, a different technique. And uh, if you just uh, uh, do the normal sort of minima go-around and the normal maneuvers, in some circumstances, that'll get you in a lot of trouble because the aircraft will automatically pitch up, start to fly a climb, which if you're doing a go-around from above the missed approach altitude will be the reverse of what you want because you'll want to continue to descend to the uh go around altitude and level off at it uh, so you do have to have your wits about you when you do these things and
4: uh, despite what everyone said they're
3: not as simple
4: as uh, people say that is true because every situation is going to be a little bit different you know we practice the same kind of thing over and over again in the simulator and they they tend to be pretty standardized but in the real world, as you said, you might be above the missed approach altitude, and the last thing you want to do is like climb like a rocket uh, when you're already above the altitude to which you should be flying.
3: Exactly right. LA is a perfect example of that, where if you don't descend down to the uh, missed approach altitude, you'll go straight through a VFR corridor that goes over the airfield. And uh, that could obviously have dire consequences.
1: Yeah. You know... <clears throat> I might be remiss, but when I was talking about Madison, I I missed a couple things in my intro. Oh yeah, about Madison, yeah. Um, one the meet up with the uh, with Frank. Yeah, one <laughs> the meet up with Frank, and then two uh, the photographs that we need to put on the uh, put on the website that uh,
4: that Dan Calligan put out there. Those ones. Oh, I didn't see that. Yeah. Those, okay. those, well, tell I, us what pictures we're looking at here. All right. So, uh, and, and not <laughs> change the subject, but it's because I was just talking about, man, what do you guys yeah. laughing at? <laughs> no, this is, if we, you're showing us a picture, but the people are listening
1: and going, what? Is well, I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to oh, show okay. it. I'm going to describe it. Um, so anyways, when I was uh, taking off out of Madison, unbeknownst to me, um, Dan, can wait, he says, Koolagin. There we go. He spells it out for me. Went over to the airport. He lives uh, very local to the airport, and I was working very local to the airport. And uh, when we were taking off, uh, he took a few moments uh, break from work. I'm not going to tell you, boss, Dan. uh, Went out and took a couple really nice photographs of the aircraft that Jeff and I fly uh, taking off out of Madison. uh, Just uh, prior to wheel retraction, and during wheel retraction. Actually, not very common that I see uh, the main gear doors in the process of being cycled closed. So it was quite an interesting photograph. But I was actually flying the airplane. So Jeff's taking a look at it. Oh,
4: yeah. It. I, uh, oh, wow. I didn't realize that uh, it put out so many sparks when the wingtip hits the <laughs> runway. <window. laughs> interesting.
1: Uh, so,
3: yeah what, are I, those trainer wheels that are those <laughs> yes those,
1: those are training wheels that i have on my airplanes they sure are so but, uh, I, I apologize to both you frank uh, for a fantastic meetup and uh, dan for these fantastic photos I, I, i'm remiss for not mentioning that make sure you send
4: them to me so i can put them in the. did you okay oh you know what did we miss something else in the intro we did is your microphone less
5: Sorry, Jeff, we did. You did Okay.
4: Well, then let's quickly head back over to the intro and let me click on this thing. Oh, this is from Mark Alexander Paquette. Uh, he says, hi, I'm writing to let you know that I've created a new subreddit. Uh, so it's reddit.com slash r slash aviation podcasts in which I list many aviation podcasts. I also make a post for each episode for listeners to comment and discuss between themselves I would greatly appreciate if you could mention it in an episode to help the subreddit gain popularity. But I will understand if you choose not to. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. Nay. Nah. You you sort of chose not to,
5: then you changed your
4: mind. Oh. Yeah. You know what? Why don't we go ahead and mention it? Okay. Oh, wait. I just did. Okay. It's uh, reddit.com slash r slash aviation podcast. Aviation and the A and P are capitalized, but I don't think it matters with a URL. Once it's beyond the, um, yeah, in the slash areas. So, um, or may actually. No, maybe it does matter. So, maybe it, you know what? I'll just put the link in the show notes. Just click on the darn thing. And then you'll have to type it in. All right. There we go. Anything else we missed, uh, no. Liz? Okay. Great. Um, let's just play quickly this uh, piece of audio from SealView. And then after that, we'll get to the best part of the show. So. Let's, um, which is the end. <laughs> no, it's not. It's, uh, the plain tail, of course. So, uh, let's see. Getting back here to the current show folder and seal view. And he is number four today. And here we go.
2: Hello, APG crew and community. Seal view here. I'm right now. I'm driving through Idaho and it's a bit windy. So my apologies for, um, lower quality hey it's not like the last feedback that i sent the last audio feedback that i sent was high audio quality that happened because i tried to use the laptop microphone while recording on the website and that didn't go too well so um i'll try to make to make it up either with this one either with next one so i'm sending this feedback in response to Tom's feedback and it's Quite interesting that sometimes people aren't very supportive of you at first wanting to become a pilot. But I think what's more important is that you are happy in what you do. Because even if people don't think that doing this job, being in a career, flying airplanes is a good career, they will respect you if. They know you love what you do because if you do what you do, you will never work one day of your life. You're just gonna go every day, it's gonna be a brand new day, and you're gonna have a smile on your face. And I think that is the most important thing that you can do. As for me, right now I'm currently at 24 hours of flight, and I recently passed my a written portion of the exam with 83%. I wish I did better to be honest, but oh well, at least I got that thing out of the way. Anyways, gosh, it's quite windy out here. Anyways, uh, I'm looking forward to flying again next week. I booked four days at uh, a flight school. Sadly, Rob Mark is no longer available to train me, but he's put me in contact with a flight school at the same airport. So I'm looking forward to getting some flights with them and finishing my uh, private pilot certificate. I reckon by March or April I should be done with it. Hopefully a little bit earlier, might be a little bit later. After that I would like to purchase an aircraft and just build up time that way. So I have a question for Dana and possibly Steph, Dr. Steph, is it okay if somebody builds time in just a single engine Cessna or airlines most likely are looking to, at someone, they want someone who actually worked in a... Uh, let's say part 135, I think, to build their hours. That's all from me and tailwinds, blue skies and the like and, well, countless IPAs for the crew and barrels of well-aged bourbon for you, Dana. From me, all the best. Silvio,
1: out. Thank you, Silvio. Well, Silvio, uh, actually, we have a special guest in the house today that can uh, relate to that very question. And to answer your question, um, any type of time in the logbook is better than no type of time in the logbook. However, uh, certainly they are uh, looking for a time that you build multi-engine specifically. They want to see a lot of multi-engine time in the logbook and the more that you have multi-engine. Not necessarily turbine. doesn't have to be turbine. Of course, turbine 135 is always a very big bonus, as uh, Chad can attest to. That will help you uh, get um, into a 121 type of carrier. Uh A lot of the carriers now have an ab program where they're going to help provide you that uh, type of training. Uh, I, I'm not sure. Did he say where he's from?
4: I didn't. I, I detect, detected the accent. But, I
5: think he was training with Rob Mark in Chicago, was he?
4: Yeah, but I mean, where is he uh, from originally? Oh, Obviously, I, I, that's I, not. I'm a,
1: wondering where he's going to try to. You know, the, the only Sylvia, the only reason for the question is where you going to try to uh, gain employment, whether it's here in the states or or, or back overseas. You know, the, there are different requirements uh, in different countries. Uh, however, here in the states, uh, certainly, uh, you know, that magical number of 1,500 hours is is key right now. If you don't uh, go to a Uh, part 141 certified school that reduces the uh, total time requirement to be able to uh, successfully get hired so if you're doing it part uh, 61 then you're going to be required to go ahead and and build up build up that time as uh, chad talked about earlier in the show today as a matter of fact because his current employer uh, or soon to be current employer is helping him to uh, finish uh, the flying so you know as long as you're building time, that's the first and foremost, and then uh, the quality of time does count. So I would say if you have an opportunity to go fly 135, by all means, go do it. Build that turbine PIC, turbine experience, and or turbine PIC time. But any PIC time that you can get in that logbook is is certainly going to help you out. What do you think,
6: Chad? Well, I, I mean, I think <clears throat> I think in his situation, I think the thing to do is obviously get your private, get your instrument, get your single, multi, commercial. Get a CFI, get a double I, start teaching. I think that's the, that's a great way to go. Another thing to do would be teach a little bit, try to get to about 500 hours. Cause that's really what a, what VFR 135 minimums are. And there are a lot of 135s will hire you with the minimums. and then what you do is work for them and get to your 1500. I think if you can somehow get turbine SIC or even PIC time, I mean, you're great. You're golden. Um, like you were saying, Captain Jeff, I mean, that, that, turbine time is like gold. I mean, it really is. If you can find a, a king air job, I think a, a thing to do is especially in Chicago where you're training, is go over to like Paul Wauke or I think they call it now, Chicago Executive Airport. <clears throat> go there and just start networking with people and find somebody who's got a king air. And if they have a, a multi engine instructor or MEI, they can sign your logbook. You don't have to go through the 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 what you know the training for the aircraft per se, but they could you know, sign you off and you can fly with you. And that's a great thing to do if you can get like a King Air type job um, flying in the right seat. I mean, it's just something you could log the time because anything that, that there's a requirement of two crew members or the captain is a, an MEI, he can sign your logbook and you can fly and you can log it. It's a great way to go. Um, yeah. Otherwise, just get out there, instruct, and build up your time that way.
1: Yeah. And, and that's actually true for most corporate right. aircraft. Uh, even even in some of the turbojet aircraft, right. you can go ahead, and, as long as the, in, the person is a, a check airman or a right. line check airman or a line um, MEI, then they can go ahead and sign your law book and, and give you instruction as right. an SIC. You don't actually have to have type rating in right. all of those situations. Exactly. So uh, excellent excellent point because, you know, you do have to go through the SEPs. Uh, obviously, there's was just answering this question about building time. But, yeah, you have to um, right. get the appropriate licenses and, right. and work work up the… the uh,
6: and I think now what the airlines are looking for, at least in this country, the regionals—they want really strong instrument skills. Because what they tell you is, they don't have the time to put you into the sim and work on your instrument skills. They expect you to come in, be ready to go. Yep. I mean, know what you're doing, know how to, you know, fly an ILS, know how to fly a non-precision approach, know the regs. I mean, that's just their big thing. It's you know, it's not just the flying I've learned. You've got to really study. You've got another regulations. You've got another procedures down pat. How oh, perfect was second right. nature.
1: How, how perfect it was that that question came across, perfect. and you're sitting right here. It was. I, unbelievable. Always.
4: It's great. All right. Well, thank you both for answering Sylvia's question, and I hope that helps, Sylvia. And now I think it would be a great time for us to get on with this week's installment of the Old Pilot's Plane Tales.
3: the old pilot's plane tails. Some more of our bombs are missing. Six turning and four burning. What a sight it must have been to see the mighty Convair B-36 Peacemaker fly. A strategic bomber with the United States Air Force, the Peacemaker ruled the skies during the 1950s and is the largest mass-produced piston engine aircraft ever built, as well as having the largest wingspan of any combat aircraft. A vast machine, it was the first that was capable of delivering any of the United States arsenal of nuclear bombs from inside one of its four bomb bays. With a range of 10,000 miles, it was easily capable of intercontinental flight and could carry a payload of over 87,000 pounds, that's nearly 40 metric tons. With our modern view of aircraft, it wasn't so much the size of the Peacemaker that we would find remarkable, but the power plants. Along the trailing edge of the wing lay six powerful 28-cylinder Pratt & Whitney Wasp Major radial engines, all of which faced aft in the pusher configuration and were fitted with huge three-bladed propellers, 19 feet, that's nearly six metres in diameter. Despite this, it was underpowered, so on later versions, under each wing, a pair of General Electric J-47 jet engines mounted on pylons were fitted. This amazing array of engines gave the aircraft its unusual nickname, but problems with fires and failures meant it was sometimes not so subtly altered from six-turning and four-burning into two turning, two burning, two smoking, two joking, and two unaccounted for. Checklist completed, ready to start, agent, sir. Project crew is CC, brakes are set, fire guard is standing by, starting. Roger, right in the air, uh, Ground is panel. This ground. Uh, clear for 56321 for start. Now, force clear. Show five. Five. The reason for the joke was partly due to the aircraft's unusual engine configuration, which had the piston engines aiming aft as pushers. The Wasp Major engine was designed with the expectation that it would face forwards in a conventional tractor direction. This would have resulted in the carburetors being continually around warm air from the engines to help prevent icing. Since they were mounted the other way round with the carbs at the front of the engine, they could not so benefit and tended to ice up. This would result in an over-rich mixture which caused unburnt fuel to gather in the exhaust system and catch fire. For an aircraft of its size it had remarkable performance, certainly the later versions with the full 10 engines. Although its operating ceiling was only 40,000 feet, it was regularly taken up to 49,000 feet, and when lightened for high emissions, it could cruise at 50,000 and then climb to over 55,000 and dash to the target at 360 knots. Even at these improbable altitudes Because of its deep wing thickness, it had a wide margin between its maximum and stalling speeds. This allowed it to manoeuvre hard, certainly harder than most of the early generation jet interceptors, which couldn't even get to those altitudes, let alone turn hard whilst up there. For crews, the jet engines could be shut down, and the intakes blanked with aerodynamic louvres to reduce drag. It was probably the worst of its nicknames that best suited the B-36, and the expectation of trouble certainly loomed over Bomber 075 on the 13th of February 1950. This aircraft was one of the early variants, being only propeller-driven, and was on a training mission to Alaska to test the capabilities of the machine and its payload, under severe winter conditions. This included tests on the arming of the Mark IV nuclear bomb that was on board. By this time, the Mark IV bomb had been part of the U.S. military's inventory for a year or more, but the arming procedure, known as in flight core insertion, had only been practiced on the ground. The ultimate test of the arming procedure would require the presence of an operational bomb on board. The Mark IV was essentially the same as the Fat Man bomb used in the bombing of Nagasaki, but it had been re-engineered to make it safer and simpler to produce. It employed a safety concept that kept the nuclear core stored outside of the bomb until close to the target, when the fissile material would be inserted into the bomb through a removable segment of the explosive lens assembly. In simple terms, the weapon worked like this. At the point of explosion, the nuclear material needed to rapidly become a supercritical mass, so that a chain of reaction would follow, releasing all the energy in the fissile material, either uranium or plutonium, in one massive event. The nuclear material was cast into a hollow sphere surrounded with uh, uranium-238, which acted as a tamper, called the pit, and circled by explosives. On detonation, the TNT compressed the pit into a small dense mass, which became supercritical, releasing the enormous amount of energy that makes the weapon so feared. Without the core inside it, the bomb just becomes a very expensive and very large conventional weapon. Uh, The mission of Bomber 075 was to fly from Isleson Air Force Base near Fairbanks in Alaska on its training mission and then return to Texas whence it came. A ferry crew flew it up to Eilson on a miserable day. It was minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit or Celsius, take your pick, in snow and wind. And then the operational crew took over. Deicing was impossible and the engines had to remain running all the time to keep the aircraft warm. If they stopped, the oil would freeze solid. The flight home would take almost a full day but the aircraft had fuel for 28 hours of flight. As well as training in actual conditions, the aircraft would conduct a practice attack on the west coast of the United States. Approaching 5pm, the huge bomber took off safely, despite being an estimated 51,570 pounds, that's around 23 tonnes, over its usual maximum takeoff weight. Although this seems a remarkable error, this discrepancy wasn't considered unusual at the time, and the aircraft flew well enough. In the tower, the squadron commanding officer asked Bomber 075 how it was going. The aircraft commander, Captain Barry, replied that the inboard flaps had stuck, probably as a result of the low temperatures, but other than that, there were no mechanical difficulties. With Captain Barry on that flight were fifteen other crew members, which included a five-man relief crew, to give everyone a rest when needed. In addition, there was an observer, Lieutenant Colonel MacDonald, who was almost certainly the bomb captain, there to supervise the weaponier, whose job it was to make the bomb ready by inserting the nuclear core into the centre of the bomb through a port found beneath the nose-mounted fuse device. Little is known of how the aircraft fared on the first seven hours of flight, but just south of Sitka, Alaska, the crew made contact with bomber 083, which was in the same general area, and advised them that they were in cloudy conditions and trying to climb. By now, the aircraft was estimated, after fuel burn, to have reached its maximum takeoff weight. Prior to entering cloud. All had been well, but then one of the piston engines started to surge, and the flight engineer had to begin manually controlling the propellers to keep them at the desired 2,300 rpm. It was a difficult job, and he thought that the props were possibly picking up ice. The radio operator on bomber 075 asked their sister aircraft, 083 to relay a message to air traffic control that they were 80 miles northeast of Sandspit on Moresby Island, which is amongst the Queen Charlotte Islands, now known as the Haida Gwai, and in difficulty. They were at 12,000 feet and picking up ice. This put them over the coast of British Columbia, they weren't supposed to be over Canadian territory, uh, at around 250 miles north-northwest of Vancouver Island. A little later, they added that they had lost an engine and were starting to descend. The flying conditions for Bomber 075 were dire. They were in freezing rain, sleet and snow. On board the aircraft and still in icing conditions, Captain Barry decided to try and climb out, but they could get no higher than 15,000 feet and then came an alarming shout from the rear of the aircraft. The number one engine was on fire. The number one was shut down and the prop feathered, but only 90 seconds later, number two caught fire. That too was shut down, but the aircraft was losing altitude, which only became worse when the number five also burst into flames and had to be shut down as well. On only three engines, and still at a very heavy weight, the crippled bomber was now descending faster. At the weather station on Cape St James on the southern tip of Queen Charlotte Islands, the conditions were poor, with a 500-foot ceiling and visibility of only three miles in rain, with wind from the southeast at 45 knots. Former 075 again contacted 083 to advise them that one engine feathered, two others losing power, we are descending. A while later they added, one engine on fire, contemplating ditching in Queen Charlotte Sound between Queen Charlotte Island and Vancouver Island. Keep a careful lookout for flares or wreckage. Even with emergency power selected on the remaining three engines, they failed to increase torque pressure. The air instruments were icing up as well, and the number three engine was having additional problems. A few minutes later, the stricken bomber gave its final position and heading. 53 degrees 00 north, 129 degrees 29 west, on a heading of 030 degrees which put the aircraft just west of Princess Royal Island. They said that they had lost an engine and might have to bail out. Captain Barry flew his aircraft down the wide sea channel between the Queen Charlotte Islands and the mainland. He was trying to get his aircraft over the land so that his crew could bail out and stand a chance of surviving as parachuting into the bitterly cold ocean might well kill them before they could be rescued. But first, he had to get rid of his bomb. The code phrase Broken Arrow is part of the US DOD Directive 5230.16 and relates to an accidental event involving nuclear weapons, warheads or components that do not create a risk of nuclear war. This was to be the very first of what has since become a fairly long list of Broken Arrow events. As they approached the coast, the Mark IV nuclear weapon was dropped without its nuclear core, and the crew saw it explode in the air over the waters of the Hecate Strait. Then they took the weapon core and jettisoned that as well. As they crossed the coast of Princess Royal Island, the radio operator locked down his morse key so that the signal could be tracked, and the aircraft commander ordered the crew to bail out. Hadn't we better belly land, Dutch? We'll freeze to death down there. i frankly blow up first.
7: Fire spinning over the whole wing, Colonel.
6: AC to crew. Nail out as close together as you can. Try to
3: join up as soon as you hit the ground. All right, here we go. The crew were descending in parachutes into a hostile environment, freezing temperatures and strong winds. It was thought that the first forder jump were just too close to the coast and they were taken by the wind out over the ocean, where they perished from exposure or drowning. In total, five crew members died. The most badly injured was the radio operator, who hung upside down in a tree until the others found him. They managed to get me out of the tree, but I couldn't walk because of frostbitten feet, so they made me comfortable at the foot of the tree, and told me they couldn't stay with me. They had to go and find help for the others, but that they would be back for me. I lay there in that ice and snow for a day or two until I was found by a Canadian rescue team who got me to a ship. The last to abandon the aircraft was Captain Barry, who landed in a shallow pond on Ashdown Island. According to Barry, as the crew drifted down on their parachutes, the plane had circled over the island. It was assumed that it then went down and sunk somewhere in the ocean. There was an enormous effort made to find and rescue the crew, but despite all the resources used, the terrain and weather were very poor, and it took a full three days to recover those left alive, But that's a story all on its own. According to the limited but official report from the USAF, the bomber had been left on autopilot and directed on a turning course so that it would crash into the ocean. When the crew bailed out, they were only 145 miles north of Vancouver Island and a mere 350 miles from Vancouver City. Despite the largest search and rescue operation in Air Force history, the five missing crewmen, the huge bomber and its nuclear weapon were presumed lost in the depths of the Pacific Ocean and officially the nuclear material was a training dummy made of lead. Due to that information, there was no further search made for the lost B-36. However, Three years later, the wreckage of the B-36 was spotted by a Canadian search plane, barely intact on the side of Mount Colligate in British Columbia, over 200 miles north of where it was thought to have crashed. How it got there is unexplained, but it is possible that the autopilot flew it there. A USAF team of specialists moved very quickly to the site to recover what secrets it contained, and high explosives were used to destroy what they couldn't carry out. To this day, the US government has remained very tight-lipped about this event, which has, of course, given rise to theories of conspiracy. But absolutely nothing I have read conclusively changes the declared facts. The US government was very keen to ensure that the crash of one of its most advanced aircraft and the loss of a nuclear weapon when the USSR had yet to steal enough information to build their own wouldn't reveal anything to a potential enemy. The location was not publicized, but many locals must have known about the site. However, it was certainly hard to get to. New expeditions in 1956 and much later in 1997 were undertaken, followed by small-scale expeditions to salvage artefacts, some of which are on display in the local Barkley Valley Museum in Smithers. The site is now declared protected, but forever has a link with the first ever loss of an atomic bomb.
4: Boo, yonder, flying high into the sun. Okay. Nice. <laughs>
3: It it was a is a great story. Uh, all the more so because it's entered the annals of uh, the conspiracy theorists who have made up all sorts of stories about how they uh, think that they were lied to, and because they haven't been uh, uh, all the facts perhaps revealed, and the uh, United States therefore don't feel obliged to explain exactly uh, what was going on, but. Uh, uh, most, I've, I've watched documentaries and, and read a lot of information that the theorists come up with, and I don't agree with very much of it. But, uh, it's a fascinating story. The very first broken arrow, and um, the first time that the United States nuked Canada.
4: And
5: hopefully oh, the last. Hopefully the last.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, you just watch yourselves up there. Well, That's all I can individual. say. Okay. All right. Excellent. Remember, uh, just a reminder, if you want to listen to the Plane Tales as a separate standalone podcast, please subscribe. Even if you don't listen to them that way, please subscribe to the Plane Tales podcast. Information about that is on the AirlinePilotGuy.com website. AirlinePilotGuy.com slash Plane Tales, I believe.
3: Yeah, please. And if you have an idea for a story, then uh, the best way certainly is to email me, please, at... uh,
4: Tales uh, at elanpilotgun.com Excellent. Hey, let's keep on moving. We only have about a half an hour remaining in the show, and this was sent in via Jeremy, and he says, "All oh, very frequent Acme flyer here, but relatively new to the show. Well, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Uh, hoping to one day move to the other side of the cockpit door. That would be awesome. Uh saw this video on YouTube recently. Have you ever had to assist with an irate passenger and uh he sent in a link a youtube link of this um, security video of an incident at the seattle tacoma international airport where and this is this happened in December of twenty fifteen again at s e a seattle uh international and the um there was a passenger who was trying to get on. But he had a huge – did you guys watch the video? He had a very large bag that he was trying to carry on the airplane. I mean, it wasn't even close. It was – It was, and he was quite upset that he was being um, asked to gate check. They weren't going to charge him anything for it. They were just going to check his bag. But he was insistent that he take that big, giant, oversized bag on the airplane. And they're saying, well, we know it's not going to fit in an overhead bin. That this is not going to work, and he just kept getting more and more belligerent, uh, um, swearing, etc., um, and interacting with the uh, gate agents. And at some point, he actually just kind of makes his way down the jetway. I'm not sure exactly how far he got; maybe about halfway down the jetway. And apparently, one of the pilots um, came uh, uh, w- resisted his advance toward the airplane and made sure that he got back out into the gatehouse area. And at some point, when A police officer was there trying to put um, some kind of restraint on him. Uh, The guy just kind of like starts fighting with the police officer and the Delta, I think it was a captain. I'm not sure if it's a captain, first officer, ends up helping, basically tackling the uh, passenger and uh, helping the cop get the uh, uh, whatever, the, the perp. As Nick likes to call
3: him, um, <laughs> lots of perps around here,
4: not perv perp in this case, although, those, oh, never mind. Um, so, uh, anyway, uh, he thought that that was kind of cool. Um, now I don't think that this is the kind of thing that, uh, our airline would encourage us to actively get involved in, <laughs> uh, a lot, but, um, I don't think there was anything specifically barring, uh, Dana and I to, um. To, to get involved in, a, in an altercation like this, especially if it's going to uh, endanger the uh, the lives of the uh, other passengers or gate agents or other crew members but um, anyway uh, did a nice job of kind of help uh, helping to um, succumb the subdue that's subdue. a better word subdue, subdue uh, yeah. the uh, the passenger so um did you did you ever have a chance to look at the uh, yeah yeah, video? yeah absolutely yeah. and uh, it's kind uh, of a long video I mean it you know it gets to a certain point after the takedown of the passenger and it keeps on going and I think I stopped watching it at a certain point but yeah
3: I mean nowadays uh, with the situation uh, on the flight deck and how limited the number of pilots are and the restrictions with going in and out of the flight deck uh, during flight of course during on uh, during the flight this could never happen but. Uh, Uh, On the ground, I certainly see why. uh, I don't see why not. Uh, If you uh, feel you can uh, help law enforcement, then get in there, guys. But uh, yeah, the company would rather
4: you didn't injure yourself doing it. Right, and I'm sure that there is a certain amount of liability that they're exposed to as well. If you like, overdo it, (laughs) overly subdue.
1: Yeah, I think there'd be a very slippery slope too, because you know the company could view it as a you know you're, you're you're causing physical harm to somebody and they you know could cause a uh, a legal nightmare for them mm-hmm. um and i think it says specifically that we're not supposed to um actually physically restrain or hurt somebody not to that or get get into any type of altercation i think yeah
7: uh, I, 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 as i said I think they, they might, kind of
1: discourage us from doing it yeah that. and i was going to say that probably is more specific to you know employee uh, to employee uh, i don't know that it addresses Customers, but you know you're opening yourself up for possible uh, possible uh, action by the company. So I'm not sure they'd do that.
4: But you know, in the in the heat of the moment, especially when you see somebody being taken advantage of, and and concern for the people that are in the general immediate area, um, how you sometimes may not think the thing completely through and just react.
1: Well, yeah, and, and if I personally saw an officer in trouble. You're absolutely right. I'm, I don't care about what
4: uniform I'm in. If that had been Dana, that, um, that passenger would probably be dead.
1: No. <laughs> no. But definitely restrained. Yes. <laughs> definitely restrained because, well, uh, you know. restrained. But, yeah. No, I, if I saw an officer having a problem in, in, in a passenger, you know, just overpowering him or mm-hmm. her, then certainly I would. I mean, I'm, you see me. I'm, I'm waiting to get to that point in the video because yeah. I have not seen the video. But certainly, if 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 the police
4: officer's in trouble, I'm I'm coming to their aid. Right. Okay. Thank you, Jeremy, and again, good luck with your, um, your your, what transformation from one side of the cockpit door to the other. Please let us keep us apprised of all that, and uh, welcome to the podcast and the APG community. Okay, uh, Tony, since sent us this. Whilst not strictly aviation, I was interested in the fact that US Air Force from RAF Lakenheath medical personnel are working in national health hospitals. Whilst it's obvious uh, benefit to us Brits, it apparently helps to keep the medics current in a range of skills. Seems good all around. Uh, do you know of other types of cooperation between US forces abroad and their local hosts? I, I do not. This is from Tony Smith. Um, you know what? Perhaps. I should maybe maybe keep this and hold over to another yeah. show because Steph might have something to say about uh, that. So, uh, Tony, just hang in there. Stay tuned. Same time, same channel. Well, it's not going to be the same time, but it's the same channel. And uh, we'll have uh, Dr. Steph chime in on this. Perhaps uh, she has something to say about cooperation between Air Force medical personnel and, and uh, civilian
5: yeah. It was was he asking was he asking about just medical or was there other was he thinking of other instances of cooperation?
4: Oh, I'm I just sorry. thought I I took it as medical, but okay. do you know of other types of cooperation? Well, okay. I was just wondering I if, see if Nick that go- knew that, of yeah.
5: any other cooperation between Well, the air forces.
4: So, Nick, I think that uh, there're probably several examples of how the United States forces abroad interact with and cooperate with, uh, the local, um, not only, um, air forces or military, but probably also civilian, um, parts of the community. Um, anything in particular come to mind? No. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. He's giving that look like, what are you talking about? (laughs) No.
3: Well, I, I, my experience of uh, United States Air Force bases, which are actually called RAF because they're officially on a Royal Air Force base, uh, is that uh, they obviously provide a lot of uh, employment for local people, and they inject uh, a great deal amount of uh, um, cash into the local area because obviously they buy and sell stuff, but. Um, They tend to be like little Americas. So you go on there and there's all-American cars and there's a PBX and they fly a lot of their favorite stuff in from the States and they have their own police force there. And, uh, you know, it's almost like stepping out of Britain into uh, the United States when you go on one of these bases. So so, uh, other than, you know, they obviously stay on very good terms with the local populace and uh, can help out when, when they can. There's not usually a great deal of formal interaction. This uh, sharing of medical uh, personnel is uh, obviously a, uh, a great example of where, where this can happen.
4: Now, earlier we were talking in the news segment about that flypast um, commemorating the um, memorial uh, for the uh, the bomber that crashed in 1944. Yep. That's an example of working together with you know the local oh, yeah, community exactly. and forces and stuff. So, Most certainly, is. yeah. Anyway, well, great question, Tony. Um, and as I said, we'll see if Steph has anything to add. Mm-hmm. If not, then maybe we won't address it again. We'll yeah, see. Yeah, we'll ask. Minute by. Okay. Let's see. Item seven. Marshall Lou sent us this. I was cleaning house and found this old postcard from the early 1980s when we flew Delta Airlines from L.A. to Orlando via Atlanta. The postcard shows the DC-9, Boeing 727, and L-1011. It was from our kid's first flight on an L-1011, a great plane. If you're interested in obtaining the postcard for your archives, I would be glad to mail it to you. And again, that's Marshall. And he, uh, we, uh, he included some photos of this postcard art. And I, Marshall, no need to send them to me. And uh, in the Nielsen archives, I already have these postcards. And uh they're beautiful works of art. Oh, yeah. Thank you.
0: Yeah. yeah.
4: Um and uh they're kind of watercolor-ish kind of style of the uh the DC nine uh a dash ten, I believe, the, the first DC nine that we flew, or not we Delta Airlines did, but uh, Acme had a very similar fleet. Um and uh I had the opportunity to fly well, I currently fly the DC nine. It's just a newer, longer more modernized version of the dc-9 in fact it's the dc-9-88 technically and the dc-9-90 um and in fact and we've mentioned it before on the show dana and i on our uh ratings our, our, our uh, license or what do we call that our type rating you you our pil- certificate your pilot our license yeah but it's not really a license because it's a certificate the card that we have with that have all our ratings and such on it, uh, type ratings and such. Uh, now, Dana is going to pull something out of his pocket. Is, we, is that like a card
3: when you go to Starbucks and get a little stamp on it? Yeah. A, a loyalty card? Yeah, yeah, very much
4: like that. No. Oh, okay. It is a certificate. Yes. It's a little card. It's a certificate uh, because we don't have licenses here uh, in the States. A little bit different nomenclature and uh, the way they work. But um, anyway, uh, on his certificate card, it says DC-9. He has a DC-9 type rating, although, you know, and I do too, although I've never actually flown a, quote, DC-9, but uh, it's part of the DC-9 family. Uh, boy, I didn't really mean to spend so much time on that particular uh, thing. But uh, the 727, uh, uh, gorgeous airplane, great airplane. And, of course, the uh, L-1011, which is uh, my personal favorite, and the personal favorite of many who have flown her. And I never got to fly the airplane, but it's simply my favorite aircraft ever built. Yeah, it's a beautiful airplane. So, Marshall, thank you. Please keep them for you and your archives, because um, I, I would imagine it's very nostalgic, because you said it was from your first kid's first flight on an L-1011. So, um, I think that you should keep it for your your own. Uh, Let's see. Um, Oh, Tarek sent us some audio feedback uh, in response to some items that we talked about on an earlier episode regarding the uh, crash of the light airplane in uh, Courcheval, France. It is France, right? Okay. Here we go. I'm going to play this right here.
7: Hey, uh... APJ Crew, tech Mary Face here, recording this from beautiful Vienna, as I'm doing line training for a major European airline that I recently joined, my first airline. Very excited about that. It's the same airline as Captain Al flies for. So big pink Airbus jets flying across the European skies, having a great time. Um, so I'd like to talk to you about the... Um, Courchevel video because actually I spend a lot of time skiing in Courchevel since I was a wee toddler I went skiing there a lot and part of the attraction to aviation was the altiport, which is that airport you see in the video Um, and I even got to land there a couple of times and I have the VFR charts and I'll try and attach them in this email along with this voice recorder and as you can see the the quote-unquote traffic pattern, the circuit, is not a rectangle, it's a triangle. And there is no go-around procedure. There's a, there's a point where you can discontinue the approach, but then uh, beyond that you're committed to landing. And that point is well, well before the threshold. You're talking sort of like two, three miles, and as you turn final, basically... Uh, if you're not if you're not looking good at that point, you just continue your turn and you go back into the open area in the valley and try and set up again for the approach. But once you start descending down on the final, you're basically committed because in front of the port is a huge bloody mountain that no aircraft, especially GA aircraft, uh, will be able to outclimb. Um, there have been a few incidents at that airport where people crash, uh, and in one case someone died uh, flying in, in bad weather. But yeah, so... I just wanted to share that. I thought it was quite, uh, quite an interesting video to watch. And from the first second the video started playing, I didn't even need to read the title I knew exactly what was going to happen. And as for the music, yes, there's a very famous restaurant uh, right next to to the parking apron. And and you got a nice view over like the skydiving pilates which is kind of cool, we get like a PC-12 people jump out of and a PC-6 that sometimes uh, parks there as well and you get some King Airs coming in, it's quite, it's quite an amazing view. And on the approach it's terrifying because as you're coming in the correct profile looks like you're about to smash into the side of this wall, which is basically the mound for the runway threshold which is flat. So the runway threshold is flat and then it goes up to 18% and it's steep, right? Uh, And so in order to get yourself well set up so that you can flare and touch down on the upslope You got to fly as if you're gonna fly into this wall So almost as if you're flying below The runway threshold itself and then you add a tiny bit of power as you flare and you don't cut power when you when you uh, touch down and that's where I think the guy might have messed up If you had, if you didn't in fact land at the top of the hill, because you've got to keep that power in, because if you don't, your aircraft's going to roll backwards. So you've got to keep that power in to go up over the top of the hill, and then you can bring back the throttle, because otherwise you're going to roll back and roll off the end of the threshold and crash on short road while you're below it. But anyways, that was my two cents, and uh, I'll keep this feedback short. Love the APG crew and the APG community, you guys are amazing. Uh, And I'm loving flying the 321. It's such a cool aircraft. Uh, Take care, guys. Bye. Thanks, Tarek. Uh,
4: Congratulations, by the way. You know, we've heard from uh, feedback from Tarek over the last several years. And uh, I I knew that he was building toward this, but I had no idea that he actually got hired by a great airline over there in in, in Europe. Yeah, I hope he's managed to bump into
3: Captain Al a few times, Uh, you know, um, metaphorically or uh, socially (laughs) rather than in the air. so uh yeah give him our best and next time you see him and well done. I'm so glad you're enjoying the Airbus product. Uh, we love it. Yeah.
4: Yeah, I I jump seated on the 321 um over or down here and uh, very impressive airplane. I I must say. Very... So go fly it. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> not that impressed. I'm so uh, not that out. impressed. Yeah, that <laughs> well, congr- yeah,
1: Tara, congratulations. Thank you for that feedback. It was awesome. Yeah. But, I've actually
4: watched several YouTube videos on the approach in there and it's, it's something else. Yeah. Thanks for, for kind of expanding uh more on this whole airport and approach and looking and thank you for the charts as well. Again, we'll have this in the show notes, um, some PDFs of the, uh, the, the approach into this mountainous area and the track that you have to fly and the details about the runway itself and some, um, Some text here, and I think the very important thing is, um, Nick, you pointed out that it's very important to have something. Yeah,
3: I've got a question because I'm not quite sure what it is. Uh, And it says here, in order to uh, make an approach, you have to hold a mountain wheel license. Well, don't Mount- you
4: have a mountain wheel
3: license? I don't think
4: so.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I'm just curious to know if anyone can and What uh, is a mountain wheel? What is a mountain I, wheel? I Googled
7: license. It. I, I Googled
4: it. I Googled it and uh, it it didn't come back with anything.
3: It comes back with Ferris wheel license <laughs> and the, which I don't th- think is quite the same thing.
4: <laughs> yeah, interesting. Airplanes and motor gliders or motor glider pilots are to comply with the following Specific instructions hold a mountain wheel license. Or failing that, if you can't figure out what a mountain wheel license is. (laughs) Or
3: if you've got one, yeah.
4: (laughs) If you have one, contact us and let us know what the heck it is. Mm. Interesting. Um, Yeah, good stuff. Thank you, Tarek. Uh, We do appreciate that. I know he had a, a YouTube channel, and I don't know if you are still doing that or not please tell us about that but again congratulations on your career advancement and i'm glad you're having a great time with that 321 all right uh first officer Ruben sends sends uh why do i keep saying that sends us this i know you prefer feedback in the form of questions stories or other anecdotes preferably in audio format and not just links to other websites but the stuff i stumbled upon online is too good not to share it's a three-part podcast about 20 minutes each interview from the australian australian aviation magazine with the owner and boss at pinstripe pinstripe solutions a company doing nothing else than training and guiding pilots to prepare for the dreaded pilot interview process especially the non-technical skills this is a golden information excuse me this is golden information for any pilot in training but also for those of us who have not yet transitioned to those major mainline airlines most often the end goal in a pilot's career i'm generalizing here though it's centered on the australian pilot industry but is applicable over the whole world especially as most airlines internationally are putting more and more focus on non-technical skills in the pilot assessments and then he sends us a link to australianaviation.com.au and the podcast uh, called clear the air and uh again, from First Officer Ruben, the Flying Dutchman Down Under. And thank you for sending us this valuable resource, because there are many people listening to the show who could probably learn something about, you know, good interview techniques, especially the non-technical skill side of things.
3: Certainly, yeah. It, and it's a it's a trying period in your life, because you may have all the qualifications and experience you need But getting past that hurdle of uh, making yourself attractive enough, particularly to a major airline, which is the real achievement, uh, to be taken on uh, is a hurdle that has to be uh, passed. And they can afford to be uh, a little picky because uh, they're probably not suffering from the same uh, pilot shortage problems that regional airlines, smaller airlines are. So uh, if you want to get into that major, which is probably most uh, commercial pilots' aim, you need to be well prepared, and I think the more you know and the more confident you are, the better you come across.
1: Yeah, I mean, there, especially, and I know he's talking about uh, Was it Austrian? Australian. Australian. Uh, there it is. Australian, pallet industry. Uh, you know, there are resources down there as well. Here in the United States, there are resources, uh, including some uh, interview prep uh, services that really work uh, close. With you and, and help you to uh, obtain those skills, both technical and non-technical. Um, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna plug them, but you can certainly do a Google search if if you're in in the uh, um, in the realm of getting ready for the, this tedious process. It's very difficult, but you know as I tell everybody, and in, in in this is the most important advice I can give you is that if you are applying to a job, always apply for a job even even if you think you're not qualified or they won't hire you because it's better they tell you no versus you making the decision for them. So you never know if you don't apply. And, uh, you know, obtain all the information you can out in the Internet. Uh, it's a valuable resource, and, and then you get these other um, sources of uh, help. Uh, it's really worth the money. It does cost some money to go ahead and, and uh, go through some of these programs. Um, certainly uh, Air Inc., uh, I believe, believe they're still doing their air shows when they bring in all these different companies uh, into one established uh, location and uh, have on-spot interviews, you wait in line and you talk to all the the recruitment people from all these different uh, businesses, corporate, all the way through airlines, and all these great resources that you have available here in the States, so utilize them. Absolutely. Thank you,
4: uh, F.O. Rubin, for that great piece of uh, feedback. We do appreciate that. Uh, We're getting short on time for this week's episode, so I'm going to skip a couple of these, and I'm going to head over to number 12 from uh, Richard, Private Pilot Rich, and Greg. Um, And when I saw this covered by the news, I'm thinking, oh no, here we go again. We're going to have to talk about this. (laughs) And uh, it says, "Uh, amazing jet stream velocities over the past few days. A Virgin Atlantic 787 hit 801 miles per hour ground speed what is the fastest commercial airplane speed you uh have experience as as a member of the flight crew? Uh no fair, counting military jets. Um, and then he says, I plan on being at Oshkosh this year, and I look forward to seeing everyone. We're looking forward to it too, as uh Private Rich, Pilot Rich. Private pilot rich. There we go. Uh so here's the headline: Flight reaches 801 miles per hour as a furious jet stream packs record-breaking speeds. And uh so, okay. There's a jet stream up there that has, and, and sometimes some parts of the year, it has really impressive speeds. And then, you know, we look at it, you know, but the speed that we see in the airplane um, is indicated airspeed. And the airplane is fat, dumb, and happy nowhere, no matter how fast the mass of air is moving it. And it doesn't feel any different or anything else. But it's, it's fun sometimes to look down at the ground speed and go, holy cow, look at that. You know, we're, we're doing 700 and some odd knots over the ground and then if you convert it to miles per hour it, it ends up being a very impressive thing but then some people start making conclusions well they're going supersonic at that altitude that air that speed would be super su-. well no that's not supersonic <laughs> uh, supersonic has to do with the air that you're the mass of air that you're actually flying through uh, and of course nick knows all about the supersonic regime uh, but uh, airliners are not at least not these days. Maybe in the future, uh, they'll start doing it again. Are not flying supersonic speeds, but they do sometimes have very impressive ground speeds, and that's pretty much all there is to it, as yeah. far as I'm concerned. And
3: if you convert it into miles an hour, it looks impressive, eight hundred and one. But you put it in knots, it was only six hundred and ninety-six knots. Uh, and if you if you wanted to make it really impressive, you convert it into kilometers an hour. Uh, if you wanted to look really stupid, it would be. Um, uh, furlongs per fortnight.
4: <laughs> <laughs> wow. I don't. Is there actually a gauge that, uh, instrument that shows you that? Yep. Furlongs. I thought per that fortnight? was yours. Uh, <laughs> but
0: <badoo-bam. laughs>
4: you Uh, anyway. Well, thank you, Rich and Greg, for sending us this great, great, uh, news item. <laughs> uh, let's see. 15. Um, how much?
5: 15. 15. 15
0: oh
4: 15 Thank you, because I, I thought. Wait a minute. You told me we had ten minutes, and now you're telling me we have fifteen. No. no, I understand now what you mean. Um, this is. Oh, and but I want to definitely get fourteen, though. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I thought we'd end on. Yeah. yeah. Good idea. Ah, thank you, producer Liz. Uh, this is. Uh, well, this is from. Uh, how would you say his name? Dermud. Dermot.
5: Dermot. Yeah, I think Dermot. Dermot. I think.
4: I'm not gonna. How would you know? I have no idea. That's the Boston way of saying
3: it. Okay. He's an O'Connor, so the Irish pronunciation would be correct.
4: Okay. Dermot. Sorry, it's Dermot, yes. Okay. It's a name that I have never heard, so there we go. Um, He says, I'm new to this podcast, but he won't be listening anymore because we just Butcher. his, Butchered his name. i'm
3: surprised dana didn't know it because of course everyone
1: in uh, boston's irish yeah well well
3: they drink like they are
4: i've, I've actually never <laughs>
1: seen that name myself even being from boston all the irish all right
4: diamond anyway Mm-mm, no uh <laughs> i'm new to this podcast can't believe i've never heard of it before just found it this mo- no kidding i can't believe you've never heard of it before either anyway i'm 33 from ireland based in ireland based in dublin I'm a regional pilot, captain on the ATR-72-600, mainly operating routes from Dublin to the UK. I've flown the CASA-212, Beach 1900D in Africa prior to my current gig, and this was my first job. I operated in Africa with this job. I did the majority of my flight training in Vero Beach, Florida, just up the road from us piece, in 2007-2008, and I loved it. I would love to go back there and rent a PA-28 again. I just wanted to say, hey, and great show. I really enjoy the chats, especially about your experiences on the line. All the best. Dermot O'Connor, or something like that. We need to hear some audio feedback from you. Yeah. Yeah, so we can hear your name. Yeah. Then then that will resolve it. Welcome to the community. I hope you stay here for a very, very long time and contribute uh, by sending us feedback and all that jazz. Preferably not in Gaelic. Yeah. Then yeah. we'll, <laughs> yeah. Only mm-hmm. one that would understand that maybe would be Nick or uh, we could <laughs> get I, Owen. We could get Owen on. Oh yeah. We'd he, I mean, probably yeah, give it a step. Yeah. Okay. And uh, let's end it with this one because we're getting close to the end of the show here. Uh, item number 14 from Josh. <laughs> I saw this too and I'm thinking this is pretty funny. He says, hi captains. I thought you might like this. A board student pilot or instructor has made the news in Adelaide, South Australia After some impressively accurate skywriting, here's the link. And he gives us the link. Every time I'm tempted to to do something like this, I need to remind myself, I need this job.
3: Well, hang on a minute. If this bloke has written, I want a job, then he probably would have got one by now. Yeah. Yeah. Instead Um, of
1: being on board. Yes,
3: exactly.
4: (laughs) So at least... That's really not good. At least it's not a U.S. Navy um, drawing. They tend to... uh, no, no, that was a bit more toilet <laughs> <laughs> yes anyway i just finished listening to episode 360 so this may be coming in a bit late but i completely agree oh so we're moving on so let's talk about this um this uh board student pilot or instructor and what he did so you know all these tracking sites like uh flight radar 24 and flight aware and more uh will now uh track your flights and you know we've seen what hearts drawn um various mike
5: carrolls has gone up and done doodles. oh yeah mike does
4: some some great doodles i guess that's
3: yeah, a-
5: he did a he did a Navy doodle.
3: Oh, one. wait a minute. There yeah. is a Navy doodle. In fact, there's two. <coughs> there's there, a Dana-sized one, and then there's a... Wait, wait, wait.
4: Now, are you sure? That, so I'm looking at that. I didn't see that at all. But now that you're pointing it out, I can see that. But yeah, yeah. I can see where your mind is. <laughs> yes. Hey,
3: hey! Sorry. I'm not the board pilot.
4: Yeah. So anyway, at some point, um, as he's making a southwesterly or northerly track, he actually writes out in capital letters, I'm bored. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, I, just, I
3: did note he missed the apostrophe.
4: Yeah. Yes. That would have been hard to do. That really would have been hard to do.
1: But so on one note, I'm I'm glad Chad is not here because he's looking to build time. <laughs> <laughs> this would be good don't, give him any ideas. don't give him any ideas
4: because that would be one of them yeah the the airline would call him back and say you know you know forget we, it we've had second thoughts <laughs> we've been we've been watching your flight's progress across the country and uh, yeah uh i anyway. but however if he went ahead and did that with the
1: airline's name oh yeah that would probably oh, yeah. be and that and the, the airline's name which i'm not going to use is a long enough name that it might take him
4: an entire flight, yeah, six hours to write. But I would leave out the little doodles on the other side of the, uh, yeah, just in case it's misinterpreted. Misinterpreted. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, so we're continuing with uh, Josh's feedback. I just finished listening to episode 360, so this may be coming a little bit too mm-hmm. late. But I completely agree with Captain Nick's comments on the difficulty of understanding Japanese air traffic controllers. I recently ferried a Cessna 172 from Australia to to Japan, taking the aircraft's new Japanese owner with me. I'm glad I did, because while ATC in Indonesia, Malaysia, and the Philippines were fine, I knew from the moment the Japanese Air Defense Force contacted us, I had absolutely no hope of understanding them. Nor, I suspect, could they understand my Australian accent. A young boy at a recent remote airstrip in Sudan once told me, you speak funny English. (laughs) Uh, It's, um, oh, I don't know what that accent was that I just used because I'm sure it was not a Sudanese accent. Um, It's, uh, which I'm not even sure how I'd even do a Sudanese accent. Well, no, but that sounded Cantonese to me. Oh, okay. Yes, it did. Speak. It sound more <laughs> Chinese than <laughs> Sudanese. Anyway, it's all down to the fact that Japanese words all end with vowels. When Japanese speak English, they will often add a vowel to the end of each word, as this is more natural to their manner of speech. For example, <laughs> for example, speaking for, of for example, for example, uh, clear for takeoff becomes clear for takeoff. I'm sure. Sh- how do I do? That's Take pretty off your, good, I think. Um, I'm sure with enough exposure, it would become much easier to understand. But I was very glad to have a Japanese pilot on board the first time I had to navigate Japanese airspace. Thanks for all the effort you put into the podcast. I've been listening for around a year, and I'm hooked. I've been flying professionally for some time as a pilot and loadmaster, currently working as a flight instructor. But your podcast has renewed my desire to pursue a career in the airlines. I love the plane tales, Captain Nick and have gone back and listened to every single one of them. You have a real knack for storytelling, and I look forward to each new installment. Have you ever considered putting together a plain tale about the origins of Airbus, covering how the Airbus concept, control laws, etc., initially differed from that of Boeing, McDonnell Douglas, and others? That'd be a really short plain tales.
3: I don't mind covering controversial subjects, but that might be just a little bit too
4: much. (laughs) I'll I'll wait till I retire. How's that? Yeah. From the show? (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) Best regards and aeronautical platitudes. Josh in Brisbane, Australia. Yeah, but thank you for those kind words, Josh. Yes. Oh, and we actually have the article talking about uh, the board pilot and the uh, doodling. And uh, I must say, I did not read this. So I'm not sure exactly who the pilot was and who he worked for and all that kind of stuff. Do we know any more information about that? Anybody look at that? Nope. It was a Diamond Star plane operated by Flight Training Adelaide and uh, hmm. it, they believed that the pilot was working out of Parafield Airport north of Adelaide, was running in a new engine. Okay, never heard that before. Um, running in, please pass. This, I love this. The pilot flew several loops, creating some Somewhat explicit graffiti along the coast before tracing I'm bored over the Prince's Highway. Uh, please, journalists, they're not loops. <laughs> 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 that is not a loop. Uh, anyway. So there you go. I'll put the uh, link to all that in the show notes. As always, thanks so much, everyone, for listening to the show, downloading it, reviewing it. Uh, and that goes for the Airline Pilot Guys show. Uh, but the plane tails... Uh, show as well. We're not Plain tails show, but Plain Tales uh, podcast as well. A show? Well, if you want, sure, <laughs> yeah, if you want, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. the Plain Tales show. Yay. And uh, let's see. If you want to learn more about the Plain Tales show and the airline pilot guy <laughs> show, you could head over to airlinepilotguy.com, our website, where you'll find information about so many things like Plain Tales, like uh, the coffee fund. And I'm trying to pull up our site right now and just read all the menu items here: podcast, APG Live, APG Crew, Plain Tales, APG Library. Don't forget about that. Our librarian Tiffany is doing a great job keeping that all up to date with great aviation literature. Uh, the Coffee Fund, the APG Store. Uh, you can contact us uh, contact us via the site, and of course the all popular meetup calendar. And if you click on that, you'll see where Nick is going to be and Dan is going to be and where I'm going to be. And sometimes where Steph is, uh, we also put meetups that we know about that are planned on there as well. And, uh, if we know when we're going to record the following week, we put all that information there as well. So it's a, it's a, a very good source of information. Also, this us in Miami. There we are. Yep, we're looking at it right here now. We are. Here we are. Here we are. Okay. Hey. Hey, <laughs> hey Liz. Thanks. Uh, let's see. We have uh, apps for their. Hi, for, Mom. For, uh, uh, <laughs> hi, Julie. It's all falling apart. Say hi to your dad. <laughs> um, yeah, say hi, to your dad. hi, Dad. Hi, Dad. Hi, dad. Hey. Hey. Hi, Andy. <laughs> nah, he's gone. And. <laughs> Uh, let's see what else. Uh, apps for the phones, whether they're uh, iOS or Android. We're also on social media. Are we? Yes, we are. On
3: Twitter, if you can find us, if you uh, give us the handle at APG Crew, at least we'll see it. And uh, on Facebook, uh, the usual preamble with uh, Alan
4: Pilot Guy, and you'll find our Facebook page there. Yes, we're also on Slack. We have an APG Slack team managed by, created by, Hillel. And he's going to tell you how you can join it.
6: APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra, Lima, Alpha, Charlie, Kilo at AirlinePilotGuy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel spelled H-I-1-1-E-1, Hotel India, 1-1, one one, Echo 1. And see you in Slack.
4: Thanks, Hillel. Now you can go back to the restroom facility or bathroom or what is it you call it? The toilet. The, the water Lou. closet, the, the water w- closet, the W water, C, water closet, the W C, and
1: up the loo.
3: We have many names, all right. Euphemisms up the yin yang.
4: Hmm, sounds painful.
1: I How about the dump station?
4: Don't forget to wash your hands. All right, that about does it. Oh, and thanks to our producer Liz, who's right there. Yay,
0: hi Liz. Liz
4: and until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Bye, everybody. See you next time.
5: Bye, everybody.
0: Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy.
6: Good day.